Next Chapter Podcasts. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. One of your first movies was Honky Tonk Freeway. Wow. An expensive, yes. star studded exploration of small town America on paper. It should have been a block. Should have been a hit. <laughs> absolute the plans flop. did oh not work God. out at all. No, an absolute flop. They spent so much money <laughs> on this movie. They put an elephant on water skis. Like this is before special effects. So they literally had to do it. They built skis and towed it around. They bought. I gotta a, see this movie. They bought a town. They painted it pink. <laughs> they blew up a freeway. Then they jumped it. They let a rhinoceros out on the freeway. Just literally let it out. What I got it from some fucking This movie's zoo. awesome, dude. <laughs> and I played some weird kid. I think um, it was like this sort of family vacation all traveling to this one town. And uh, I they got an RV, and I refused to, to take a piss in the RV. Yeah. So they had to stop at truck stops so that I could go to the bathroom the whole time. That ah. was my story arc. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. Why? It makes you feel good. We don't take our trips on LSD. I once ran naked through the G-Town streets. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. No one has draft cards anymore. We like living right and being free. We don't make party out of loving we don't have sex but we like holding hands and pitching woo we don't let our hair grow long and shaggy we all have buzz cuts like the hippies out in san francisco do I'm proud to be an okay from Miskokie. God, I love that song. Holy shit. Okie from Miskokie by Merle Haggard from his 1996 compilation, Down Every Road. It's also number 477 out of 500. On, you guessed it, the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, Fleece Army? You guys, you guys drenched in fleece. Got your fleecicles on. I'm totally fleeced out, 100% fleecified, because I'm the king of fleece. Me, Josh Adam Myers. How are you guys? Hope you guys are having a good time. 
because we are on our way through Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 albums list. And, uh, dude, we're in, this, we're in the 470s. It's pretty good. I talk about it every week, guys. Give me your Instagram story. Come on, guys. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500 and tag me. At Josh Adam Myers, hashtag the 500 podcast. Give me a 24-hour ad on your social media. You can put me on the on your page, but if you don't want to do that, I'm trying to get the word out, so help me out with an Instagram stories. 24 hours. That's all I need. And I love the people that have been doing it. Thank you. Also, guys, how about this? If you listen to the podcast on iTunes, leave a review. If you do it, you're officially a sergeant in the fleece army. I will I will find out everybody if you show me that you left a review. I you are officially a sergeant. You skip private, you skip corporal, and you immediately become a sergeant in the fleece army. If you notice I've been giving some people rankings. Dude, if you do a lot of shit, you're a general. 100%. Most of the time I'm giving those to people that are joining the Patreon page. So if you guys really want to join the Patreon page, you're immediately a general. We got a bunch of people, so thank everybody. If you're listening, uh, however you're listening, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever it is, guys, I appreciate your support. New thing we're starting today is Today in Music, where I'm going to be basically telling you guys a cool fact about something that happened in the music world on the day the podcast is being released. So here's our first one for April 10th. Today, in 1994, electrician Gary Smith, who was working at Kurt Cobain's house in Seattle, discovered Cobain's body lying on the floor in the greenhouse. A shotgun and a suicide note were found next to Cobain's body. Really, we, we couldn't find one a little bit more uplifting. We got we to gotta talk about one of the most tragic events that happened in music history. Good one, Morty. Really good job on finding these for me, you fuckface. Now, this will be a good one. For the first one, let's talk about the suicide of one of the greatest musicians to ever live. I'll always remember that. I remember I was with Tassos and Ben and and all those guys, and uh, they were obsessed with Nirvana. Didn't affect me till years later, really, where I was like, wow, man, I really would have liked to have seen what Kurt Cobain and Nirvana would make in the future. Do you know what I mean? Like, would he continue with that three-chord grunge structure? Because in all honesty, like, I think Nevermind is brilliant, but fucking In Utero is okay. It's okay. It's not It's not nearly as good as Nevermind. Well, good one, Morty. So every week we're going to be doing a new one of those. So I just thought, pretty cool. Something to talk about on the podcast. All right, guys, let's talk about our album today. But before we talk about Merle Haggard, we have to make a distinction between the popular country music in the 50s that was coming out of Nashville, Tennessee, and that fresh new Bakersfield, California sound. Both were considered country, but unlike Nashville's glossy, orchestra-laden, and heavily produced songs, the Bakersfield sound owned as much to the spirit and excitement of the newly popular rock and roll as its country roots. First pioneered by Wynn Stewart in the early 50s, who later gave Merle his big break, the Bakersfield sound was made famous by Merle and Buck Owens. Buck, 
was the host of the 70s country comedy TV show Hee Haw. The Bakersfield sound directly led to the 60s outlaw country genre, as well as the 70s popular crossover country rock bands like the Eagles, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and Poco, to name a few. It inspired Steve Earle, who we already did, and the Mavericks, and all that alt country like Wilco, Sunvolt, all that shit, man. So this is like all that stuff comes from what we're listening to today. And what I got to say is Merle Haggard represented outlaw country, the dopest of all the countries. It's not just tough guy shit to sell records. Merle spent many of his early years in juvenile detention centers, even some hard time in San Quentin, which greatly influenced his later musical career. In fact, it was at San Quentin on January 1st, 1958, that Haggard decided to turn his life around and dedicated to music after, guess what? He saw the first prison performance by Johnny Cash. And Cash would later become one of his contemporaries. And the two forefathers of Outlaw Country. Now, just to clarify for those who are unfamiliar with the way this works, all right? Each week, we take on an album from this list, from the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list. Sometimes it's a double album. We do our best to hit every song. However, we got fucked. Rolling Stones fucked us today. This is our first attempt at doing an entry that is a complete box set career retrospective over a hundred fucking songs. So, because we can't do that, me and my guest, we picked out 18 of our favorites to review. I listened to the whole thing, only reviewing 18. But guess what? We're all learning together. All right, fleecies? You fleecical motherfuckers. Speaking of my guest, my guest today is actor, writer, and producer Peter Billingsley. How do you know him? Well, he's my boss on F is for Family as one of the creator and executive producers of that show. He's produced hits such as Iron Man, The Breakup, Wild West Comedy Show, Sullivan Sons on TBS, starring my good, good friend Steve Byrne. But most of you know him from playing Ralphie in A Christmas Story. Yes, he's the kid who shot his eye out from one of the most iconic movies ever about Christmas, Peter Billingsley from A Christmas Story. Fucking A right, I got Ralphie. Why? Because this guy's an interesting motherfucker. I love him to death. We've become good buddies over, over the years. Since I met him through my good friend Bill Burr, and I know you guys are going to love this podcast. Don't forget to listen to the end of the podcast where we spotlight a new artist that's directly influenced by Merle Haggard. Like I said earlier, however you listen to this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to The 500. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media and email the podcast about anything. I don't care. Just t- if you want to tell us about your day. If you want to write your review of the album, because we're going to start doing shit with that. If you guys want to email us your reviews so we can start doing either a supplemental podcast or start posting them on the website. We're going to do a whole blog, everything. I want you guys to be involved in this, man. If you're following along on the format and doing all this shit, 
email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 478 out of 500 with Down Every Road by Merle Haggard. Peter, Peter, Peter Billingsley, Peter, Peter, take the line, Peter Billingsley, (laughs) yeah dude. How did you become a fan of Merle Haggard? How did that start for you? Well, I became a fan of country music. I grew up in New York City. I was born there. And then when I was nine, we moved to Phoenix. And kind of unbeknownst to me, Phoenix is a is a pretty big mecca of country. And so I started to get exposed to it. Started really with Willie Nelson. Okay. Um, and loved him. And then that sort of evolved into a lot of the older country artists. Waylon and then eventually Merle. Um and I loved it. And there was a big radio station in Phoenix, KNIX. Okay. That was actually um, later bought by Buck Owens, who was also part of Merle's California Country Sound. Yeah. And very much that, that, same, um, that same inspired sound. And I would listen to it constantly. would go to a lot of country concerts back there, and it just really became a huge part of my life. And for a very long time, I mean, really kind of even now, old country is what I listen to. It dominates my playlist. It's the majority of the music that I've probably listened to in my life. Okay. And I've just always related to it. I've always loved it. I've, I've tried to expose people to it because country can get a really bad rap sometimes. Well, I think I think a lot of people, especially now, know country as honky tonk, but donk it do Like this, there's a difference between Merle and Hank Williams, and and you know, if you want to put Senior, Johnny yeah. Johnny Cash in there, For and some sure, of those of guys, and George c- Jones, yeah, c- because they lived what, what I they think sang. they were saying, and 100%. and and I think when you look at the stars now, it's just you know, for a person on the outside, it's not a big country fan at all. It's just you look at it and it just seems it's cheesy. Pop. It's pop. It's, it's pop. Be- it's pop music. Yeah, it's and pop- it's not what country was. Okay. Um. At all, because as you said, these guys lived it. And when you look back at their life stories, I don't think they were singing lyrics to try to rhyme. They were singing what they knew. They were angry. They were poor. They were frustrated. Uh, they were starving. And they were singing about the experiences of their lives. And they were singing it beautifully. And it really became a music for a lot of working class folk who didn't have a lot of music. And a lot of the sounds we're going to talk about today, and I think what ultimately, you know, it started in Nashville. Right. And that Nashville sound early in the 50s was the orchestral, very well produced, you know, kind of if you look at old pictures of Willie Nelson, you won't even recognize him. He has the short parted hair and the bolo and the jacket. And he looks so well. Really? Oh, my God. No braids. Came out of the corporate culture of Nashville in that way, that very polished kind of Americana, easy sound. 
and a lot of these guys. And then this music came out of the honky tonks when a lot of the immigrants from Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas went out to California to work. Um, and for a better life, this was the music that they were used to hearing in their honky tonks and it started to dominate the California sound. So did, so, I mean, as you're getting into country and you were saying what, like your teens? Would yes. You say, so uh-huh. if, yep. I mean, are you, are you, are you hanging out with other people that are listening to this kind of For music? For sure. I mean, there were a lot of people in Phoenix that liked it. I liked country and then I got into punk. And there was a similarity. There's a total similarity. Please tell me. Please tell me why there's a similarity. Because I I started laughing immediately. And then you're like, nope, this makes sense. Okay. And I'll also equate it to old rap. There's a purity. And I'll equate it to the blues. There's a purity in what they're singing from their life experience. Right? They're literally singing the punk culture is an outraged culture. Yeah. Who's singing about the things that anger them and what they want and they're not getting. How they see life. It's pure, it's real, and it's why Social Distortion has covered so many Johnny Cash songs. They're incredibly inspired by a lot of country. So many of these guys are. Rock and roll is wildly inspired by country. Keith Richards was totally inspired by Buck Buck Owens. The Beatles played Act Naturally, the Buck Owens song. So the inspiration of that guitar, that country twang guitar... I think it's the, you probably know more about this than me, the... What's that? The, the type of guitar, it's like the... Um, Steel guitar? The slide? No, no, it's the actual amplified guitar The came out of country and inspired a lot of rock and roll. You know what's funny that you mentioned the Beatles? Throughout listening to this album, there were so many songs that I was like, this sounds like something off of Rubber Soul. This sounds like something off of... Uh, revolver, maybe like the beginning. It's like, and then I had no idea that act naturally. I thought I just thought that was a Beatles song. No, for it's so not. long. It was a, it, it's a buck, it's a buck Owen song. Do you think that listening to that music is kind of what helped you uh, become and mold you, you know, your ability as a storyteller, not just as an actor, but going on and becoming a producer and a director? I mean, it's have you for plucked sure. from that at, at all? I, I, yeah, I think you always do because I think I related to again the purity of it. I related to the storytelling, the yeah. rawness, the pain. There's a lot of pain in the music, and it's very real. And they don't shy away from it. They kind of lean into it. Again, it gets this weird perception, you know, like the old joke. You know, you get your car stolen, you get thrown in jail, and then your mama dies, and you've got a country song. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but there's truth in that. No, for sure. You know, and a lot of these guys spent time in prison. You know, they're not glorifying it. They're singing about what they did. It's not, it's not the outlaw lifestyle that we all kind of idolize in Hollywood and how cool that is. They did it, and in some ways they were kind of embarrassed about it, I think, wanted a better life, and music was a way of expressing that. And Merle spent time in prison. He saw See, Johnny. See, San Quentin, and, and I, saw that's Johnny, one of my facts. Yeah, and he saw Johnny live play. Yeah. It's I have it. That was he while he was in prison at like, San Quentin. That's when he saw Johnny Cash in the perform late, there in the late 50s. Yeah. All right. Let's dive into this. Our album, which I don't even know if I can call it an album. This and we're going to talk about this is number 477 out of 500. It's the career compilation record down every road 1962 through 1994 by Merle Haggard released in 1996. Now, before we start, I have to give love to Merle's band. Okay. The strangers who started with him in Bakersfield in 1965 and are featured on most of these songs. The original lineup was Roy Mike, Roy Nichols on guitar, Ralph Mooney on steel guitar, George French on piano, 
Jerry Ward on bass and Eddie Burris on drums. Because as we go along, he's changed. You know, he had performed with other people. And this is just called a Merle Haggard compilation. But it's really the different variations and the most important, you know, time of his career is with the strangers for sure um now i have to ask this do you feel like a record like this should be on the greatest records of all time list this is a greatest hits this is not just a greatest hits this yeah, is have, have, this is have everything we said this is 100 songs yeah dude so so everybody so so, <laughs> so peter just... i didn't no idea like i asked peter to do this and i was like dude so uh i want you to uh yeah just start listening to it and then you called me and we're like Dude, this is uh, this is like 120 Yeah, because I was familiar with your podcast. I was like, oh, this is cool. They go through the whole album. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is like just the music alone, I think, is four hours and 20 minutes without us even talking. And I was like, I don't. Are you intending a 10-hour podcast? I mean, we could do it. We could do it. I mean, I could call CJ, your assistant, and say, just clear a schedule for the next two days. What we did to make this flow a lot better is uh, Peter and myself, we picked out 18 songs off the record that we feel are going to capture what Merle uh, did in his career and the different variations of the music that he was making. So... Uh, the first pass at this, what did you start feeling like when you really started digging into this uh, before we taped? Um, I, I, it, it starts early. Yeah. I, mean, I think we go from we go in the '60s to the '90s. Yeah. Um, so it's spanning a 30-year trajectory. Um, I mean, the early observations, because you kind of listen to it in full, uh, his voice, which you'll hear, which gets kind of deeper. He always had this beautiful baritone great voice yeah he's always known for having a awesome voice but it just gets saucier and deeper as he gets older he's like the country um, barry white it, he's totally. got like a and real just, like go home go home, go home. Um, and i think the evolution of his music you hear probably coming out of nashville a little bit just the sort of sweeter kind of gentler more fond songs and they grow into an angrier merle um Oh, that's what I commented. A lot of things, right? That's what I commented Um, to you. But again, the purity of the music is he, as he's evolving as a person, his songs are evolving. And then the kind of wistful Merle as things get over, as he gets more reflective and looks back upon his career. And, you know, I I think even his, his points of view on those songs changed. So it's to answer your question, does the album deserve it? Well, they've put it towards, you know, 500, obviously. Sure, it's towards the end. But I think no doubt because. One of your facts should be how many number ones he had. I think it's, I don't think I have. I think it's north of fifty. Do you have it on in, your on no, your facts? I, I think it's north of fifty in his career. These are these are so number one country songs correct. on the country list. Correct, okay. but still that's pretty, still great. No, and I, I, I shouldn't for, have even said it like that. For I mean, that's what he was making was country music. So he's not sure. so much of a. I think that's one of the great things about him. He wasn't a crossover like these guys now. Do they go on the country the pop charts? Yeah, he was a country artist. You know, he sang country music. Uh, he wrote a lot of these songs as well. So this is not just a greatest hits album. This is pulled from a lot of songs from a lot of his albums. And the the album itself, do yourself a favor and listen to the whole thing. It takes you on a journey. And we picked some kind of, you know, we obviously picked the hits, um, some of the the most iconic songs. But then there's some also interesting songs of him because I think the other thing that stands out as a person is you hear, like what you heard, some of the, not not anger, but strong opinions about things. 
and society. But there's also a very soft side to him. There's a non-judgmental side. There's sure. a very no, loving I, and side I, and to I him. And I felt that. And, and I, so there's a dichotomy like there are to most people who are complex. So you can't put the guy in a box. And I think that there's, there's other things that he's saying about that might seem opposite to the more patriotic anthems yeah. that you would think go in that box with all these categories. Yeah. And they don't because there's this sort of fairness side to him. There's a loving side. There's, you know, he was against prejudice in a lot of forms. So it's... It's interesting to look at the music that inspired him from those categories as well. So I think that's kind of how we approached it, and we wanted to get stuff from every decade. And some of the stuff I think that's cool about him, even that's cheesy, like he writes a lot of his songs in first person, so there's an assumption that they're literal biographical songs right about him, and a lot of it treads on stuff that he had gone through. But they're not, and I think some of them were kind of intentionally written as ironic and kind of funny and light and taking an extreme point of view with that, but obviously leaning towards understanding that. And look, he sang for for a lot of people that related and I don't think had a lot of artists that were representing him. You know, he found – he was a voice for a lot of people for a long, long long time. No, I believe it. I 100% believe it. Let's dive into the album. All right, so our first song is The Bottle Let Me Down from 1966, Swinging Doors. And and I just mean this is a perfect country song. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. Tonight the bottle let me down. Tonight, the bottle let me down and let your memory come around. The one true friend I thought I found. Tonight, the bottle let me down. Just everything about this song is perfect to me. I love the slide guitar in it. The message, because we've all been there. We have all been there. And the line in the first verse, this is my favorite part, where he says, but tonight your memory found me much too sober. Couldn't drink enough to keep you off my mind. I love that. I've been there, and I think that's also a common thread in a lot of country songs. The heartbreak, the drinking, it's just that is the perfect country music tropes, and it's found all over in country. What is your drink of choice? Right now, my drink of choice is a vodka uh, grapefruit. Vodka grapefruit. What yeah. was it? Uh, for a long time, it was something that we called a hillbilly sunrise. Oh, God. Which we named. <laughs> <laughs> Me and a good buddy drank a lot of it. Uh, and it was Jack Daniels and orange juice. That doesn't sound too bad. It I doesn't, mean- but it's, it's, I mean, we would ask, <laughs> we just started calling it by name when we go up to a bar. Say, so I'll take a hillbilly sunrise. <laughs> and they just like, you're like, what? Then I look at them like, how have you not heard of that? So Jack Daniels and orange juice. And they're like, oh, okay, sorry. Well, and me, they pour it on the rocks. Well, let me ask this, because listening to what we, we just heard in that song, have you ever tried to drown your, your sorrows, uh, your love sorrows? <laughs> Or with, sorrows in general. Whichever. With, with Jack Daniels being the drink, yes, is the answer to that one, for sure. Uh, I think many times, and I think that, that, that whole notion of tonight the bottle let me down is true. Yeah. Like, you know, you kind of go to it, and you, and you want it, and you just want to escape. Uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it just doesn't, and it just drives you kind of deeper down. Uh, but for sure, and I think that, you know, 
country music's even better like when you are drunk um really yeah because like you can kind of connect to a lot of the time i think even more the purity of it yeah because i think a lot of these guys spend a lot of time that way Uh um it's an introspective music to me like a lot of the time the songs are about looking back they're reflecting you know it's not always about optimism or moving forward it's about kind of the things that have happened to them um a lot of the pain in their life and so that's obviously can be amplified when we drink oh for sure what is something you did when drunk that really set you back emotionally when sober (laughs) uh probably you know always calling the wrong people you're that kind Uh, of person uh, i mean i was i'm not now i think in the past i probably was yeah I think probably. What's the one phone call you regret making when drunk? Oh, there's probably uh, numerous to yeah, numerous, but um, I remember one to an ex, um, and then it kind of opened the door of optimism for her, and then that had I had to kind of stamp it out once I got sober again. Oh wow! Well, yeah. you, was it just like uh, I just miss you? Thought it'd be probably, cool to give you a ring. Yeah, probably all She's that like, stuff. Oh, oh my god! Great. She's like Tina. Peter called me. Oh my god! Oh, it's happening. So awesome. I knew. And then it. we're going out, and I'm like, Yeah, I don't think. I'm sorry. What is the drunkest you've ever been? Because I feel like you've got some some partying days in you. I know some of your buddies. You know, have you have? What's the wildest drinking night? You can remember, um, which is I, I think the uh, I've got a good friend who lives down in New Orleans, yeah, and owns a bunch of bars down there. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time in Vegas too, but I, I kind of keep the governor on in Vegas because I like to gamble, so I can't get too trash there. Yeah, but in New Orleans, I mean, twenty four hour drinking, in and out of bars, cups on the street, it's just endless. And yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember, and he's got a good picture. We were sitting on a bar on a couple bar stools in his bar. And I just completely fell off the stool <laughs> onto the ground. And, uh, you know, he just took a picture of me on the ground reaching up to him. Uh, and I think that's the last I remember of that night. Um, and we went for like another four or five hours. How is your drinking now? Uh, I think pretty normal. I mean, uh, I'll drink, you know, vodka, grapefruit if I go out. If I'm just having a little drink at home, it'll probably be wine. Wine? Yeah. So, you know, as you get older, I, I, I think you kind of realize you can't kind of I learned rolling as much I learned at very I'm very very lucky that I learned before I moved to Los Angeles that I can't drink so I've been drinking about 12 years um I used to drown my sorrows like by by choice like well sober. it was kind of legal it was a legal situation I had three DUIs you okay, know I was yeah. I was uh, as I said I bet, as I said many times on the podcast um you know I am uh, I'm not proud of them but I am proud of my drinking and driving record because I drove drunk thousands of times to only get caught three times I mean that's like Hall of Fame dude that's really mm-hmm. good uh, and I remember I got my third DUI in December December 8th. 2006 I got pulled over uh coming home from work in front so I was as I was driving down uh Middlebrook Road which is like the street I was living with my parents I just graduated from college it's Christmas time and uh there's a car behind me a cop's behind me and I'm like okay I'm gonna pull over I'm gonna get cigarettes and I'm gonna lose them and I went and did that and then I get back into my car and as I'm driving, the cop just shows up right behind me like, hey, hey, player. It's just like he's right oh. there. Lights come on. And I'm so close to my parents' house. I'm like, I am just going to drive home 
park in front of my parents' house, get out of the car, and go inside. I'm like, I'm just going to ignore that the cop is behind me. That's pretty ballsy. Very ballsy. And I pull up in front of my parents' oh, house. I get out of the car. It's like 2 in the morning. I get out of the car. I start walking up to the door. I literally get my hand on the door, Peter. And the next thing I know, there's just like an arm around my throat. And I'm like, blah! And, I, and she just throws me down. She? This, it's a female cop. Nice, and she's like, why were you running? And I was like, <laughs> I was I, and I look at her. I was like, where'd you come from? And she's like, I've been following you for the last mile through the neighborhood. And I just look at her dead serious. And I go, Oh, I thought those were the Christmas lights. And then she was like, all right, you know, we're going. She takes me down to my car. You're fucking hammered. Oh, I'm hammered, dude. And then she says to me, she goes, let's do the test here. And she's got my light, the lights on. And we're in front of my parents' house. Nobody's woken up yet. And I just look at her. I go, listen, I'm drunk. Just take me, take me to jail. Like, Please don't I, wake up my family. Do not wake up my family. I've embarrassed them so much in my life. I don't need to do it again. Uh, and that was really the last time I ever drank like regularly i had a few other ones uh that i did drink through like when i lost my buddy we we're talking about um drinking your sorrows away mm-hmm. when my friend angelo died in the in the in the car accident we were in uh i mean i i might have not used alcohol so much but i used opiates like the doctors were giving them to me because i was in pain and so i completely just was like i'm gonna numb myself up and just like not feel anything so I think that's something, and I've been in love situations, been in breakups. Like I completely can agree with this song. It's just I've been there, and uh, it's when you medicate yourself to try to take the pain away. Hundred percent, you know. And it's, um, yeah, it's something that I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of. Perfect. All right. Well, then that leads us to "Go Home" from the 1967 album "Brandon Man." And uh, the first thing that stuck out to me about this song is the Spanish guitar. It is That's right. right up my alley. I love the way that he sings Go Home in the chorus. Peter, play the chorus. Go home, go home. Your people would not understand. Go home, go home. Go back to your own homeland. country so influenced by spanish guitar spanish music as well you know all the great westerns where do they run yeah they run out of mexico you know it's um and this is such an interesting song because it's about like this kind of interracial love and oh and how it doesn't come to fruition and how oppression ultimately you know drives their love apart and she predicted it and it totally comes true for the naive Young man who thinks that love will conquer all. This is a sad love song story about a prejudice uh, written by Jim Collins and Curtis Wright. And in the light of some of the songs that 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 were to come later in Merle's career, it's comforting to hear him on the side of the hopeful immigrant in such a loving and sympathetic way and indirectly confronting and condemning racism i mean there's a story in this about 100%. him it's, this is this is why it's like we were talking about about like him practicing what he preached and this is like a beautiful message that i just wasn't expecting now in 2006 you and your producing partner vince vaughn produced the wild west comedy tour which was also turned into a movie uh basically you took a group of comics that you guys loved across the country on a month-long tour and we asked our buddy Ahmed Ahmed, uh, who was on tour, about his experience. 
Uh, he said it was in quotes. He goes, before we started the Wild West tour, they asked me to open every show. And I was very nervous because I'm Middle Eastern Muslim and it was not too long after 9-11. And we were performing in front of 2,000, 3,000 white Christian Americans every night who thought, <laughs> uh, who thought they would not like me. Then Vince came uh, up to him and said, well, Rudolph had a red fucking nose and he led Santa's sleigh. Don't let whatever you think your flaw is hold you back. In fact, that's actually your gift. So stop making excuses. Be funny and lead the sleigh. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Now, uh, you and Vince have never allowed color or creed to interfere with someone's talent, and uh, their thoughts are, hey, funny is funny. And so when you guys were touring through the Deep South and the Midwest, dozens of white Christian fans would approach him saying, giving him high fives and taking pictures with him. And he says it was simply amazing. Do you think the political and social climate across America today would allow you guys the same great experience? 100%. Yeah. 100%. First off, I agree. Funny is funny. Yeah. And funny travels. And you know this doing comedy shows. Right, you move around, and funny is funny. And I think the great thing about Ahmed, Vince and I have been friends with him since we met, all three of us met on the same project, on an after-school special in uh, 1989. And it was an after-school special on steroids. I played the kid who was on steroids. Vince played my best friend, and Ahmed was an extra in it, who was on the track team. And I was like going after the track team, and I got on steroids. Yeah. Because um, I wanted to date Nicole Eggert from Charles in Charge. I mean, I take steroids that. too for Nicole right? Eggert. I mean, please. We also blown and, away, guys. We also blown away. So we met him and just became fast friends. He was a really cool guy. He was from Riverside, California. They had come from Egypt. His family moved there, and we just became great friends. And we built a friendship for a long time. I made got into comedy, and the great thing about him is comedy, which did always translate. When we traveled, he has a self-deprecating, very inviting way of comedy. And I think that to answer your question and why I say yes, it's so much in the approach of people. I think divisiveness is caused by a lot of the divisiveness on the part of the person who's doing that comedy. So if you come into a room and you want to rip it in half and you want to point out all the differences of everybody in the room, you're going to draw a lot of conflict. When he comes out, you know, I used to say, and not in the hacky way, that he reminded me of, Yakov Smirnoff in a good way. Remember him from the 80s? Oh, yeah. I just did a show with him at the comedy store. Okay, so what did he do during the height of the Cold War? You know, it's not me. Yeah. You know, I love America. <laughs> yeah. Right? So he came out, so we all laughed at him. Yeah. But we hated Russians, anyone who grew up in that time. I mean, they were telling us in school, it was on the news every night. They were public enemy number one. Yeah. We couldn't stand him. But we loved this guy because he wasn't coming out 
and hating us. And I think Ahmed has that incredible quality. He's a very loving person. He's a very funny person by nature. He's a warm person. And so you would see all these crowds, because we toured, I think the reason he's saying 3,000 white Christians is because we toured through the South a lot. We yeah. toured through a lot of large cities. Uh, we started in California, and we moved across the country. Uh, and we ended in Chicago, but we went through a lot of Southern cities, and we went to some some cities that don't always get huge shows as well. So maybe some, you know, some college towns and things. Yeah. Because um, we wanted to bring comedy to them. Um, and I would say he was the one guy that consistently got laughs every night. And it's really because of his approach and it's because of who he is. He's a unifying guy. He's not a polarizing guy. So you saw no pushback throughout the I tour. I saw zero pushback at all. Yeah. You know, and I think he comes out and he kind of breaks the ice right away. He's like, yeah, my name's Ahmed Ahmed. And um, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry, I did not bring a bomb tonight. You know, yeah. and so he just sort of diffuses, so to speak, everything. And they laugh, and he breaks the tension. And he says, are there any other Arabs in here? It's crickets. He's like, okay, great, it's just me. <laughs> so he kind of owns it. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. And then he kind of goes on, and he does guy-girl humor, and he does other dating things. It's not all just race-based or political. And it's like even this song. It's just a love song. It's a guy who fell in love with somebody. Yeah. But there were circumstances and other energies that were going to keep them apart. But he doesn't love her because she's something. He loves her because it's her. No, completely. That goes in to Mama Tried from 1968's Mama Tried. First thing I thought was this sounded like something, like I said earlier, that the Beatles had written uh, in Rubber Soul. At least the intro did. So, Peter, play the intro uh, real quick. thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing. I mean, you can't not hear the Beatles. The chorus is great, and you can see why this was one of his biggest songs. Uh, it's upbeat and carries a message about Mama trying to save her wayward son. Here, here's some sample lyrics. And I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame because Mama tried. Uh, this is one of Merle's most popular and meaningful songs. For sure. It's the first of two songs on this list that give credit to his mother's plight and the first of two that talks about being incarcerated. Obviously, Merle's outlaw mythos was solidified by this time, by his time in prison, and here's his take of his past story to its fictional but plausible conclusion by making the narrator a lifer, which, of course, he wasn't, so this was like him kind of making it a little bit deeper. Musically, this is the prime example of the type of loud, electric, honky-tonk sound coming out of Bakersfield, uh, in the 60s. Side note, Hager, uh, Merle's version of Mama Tried was on the soundtrack of the 1968 film Killers 3, a film that was featured, that actually featured his acting debut. Uh, speaking of Honky Tonk and movie debuts, one of your first movies was Honky Tonk Freeway. Wow. An expensive, yes. star-studded exploration of small-town America directed, this is fucking badass, man, by John Schlesinger, who directed Marathon Man and won the Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. Oh that is incredible. On paper, it should have been a block. Should have been a hit. <laughs> absolute the plans flop. did oh not work God. out at all. No, an absolute flop. They spent so much money on this movie. 
This was 1979. I remember later doing the math. It was like the Terminator 2 of its day. The amount of money they spent, like $30 million in 1979, which was a psychotic amount of money. They put an elephant on water skis. Like, this is before special effects, so they literally had to do it. They built skis and towed around. They bought. I got to see this movie. They bought a town. They painted it <laughs> pink. They blew up a freeway. Then they jumped it. They let a rhinoceros out on the freeway. Just literally let it out. They got it from some fucking This movie's awesome, dude. (laughs) And I played some weird kid. I think um, Howard Hessman and Terry Gar were my parents. It was like this sort of family vacation all traveling to this one town. And uh, they got an RV, and I refused to to take a piss in the RV. Yeah. So they had to stop at truck stops so that I could go to the bathroom the whole time. That was my story arc. How old are you while you made this? Like nine. Eight. Eight years old. I was eight. And this was the first of a lot of movies for me, pre-Christmas story, yeah. that were these big hype movies like, kids, you're going to be a star. This is really going to do it for you. I was excited. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's going to see it. Just Absolute bomb. Nobody saw it. Total flop. And then I did a movie right around the same time called Paternity okay. with Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds at the time was the, you know, kind of Tom Cruise Vince Vaughn, Will Smith, Heyday guy, right? The oh yeah, box super sexy, straw. like yes, yeah, total the number one. Every movie number one. Um, he played a guy who wanted to have a son, and I was like a surrogate son to him, kind of. Yeah, total same thing. Kid, you're gonna be a star. You're gonna this is gonna be huge. After this, I was like, all right, this is awesome. Total bomb. <laughs> Jesus total Christ! Bomb. I started to feel like box office curse. <laughs> it's like, am I cursing these movies? Well, do you remember any of the advice that people gave you while you were doing all of this? I mean, because that's basically what the song is about—that we need guidance, and as long as we listen and we take it, you know, we'll be okay. I mean, well, it's also about you know, Merle's dad died when he was nine. Okay, so his mom raised him, and I think his mom tried her best. Um, to do what she could do for him. And so I think it's a lot, he sings a lot about his mom. And yes, somewhat fictitious, and obviously he went to prison, which is true, um, and felt like he let her down. Um, And as a single working mom, working hard, tried to do her best. And so I think he sings a lot about son and mother. Yeah. Um, And a lot personally for him, because the family had moved out to California for a better life. The dad had died, and they were kind of stuck in this place. Um, And she was working multiple jobs to try to put food on the table. I had a very unique relationship with my mom and I had a very good relationship and experience as a child actor. You know, my colleagues, so to speak, didn't. Um, a lot of child actors had a really rough go of it and yeah. didn't come on the other like side. We, well, see, we see like the Corey Hames and, you know, the stories from that and then kind of countless. I mean, Corey you know, Feldman, it's kids. like he he didn't. It's just, he, I mean, I'm not shitting on him at all. It's just like he's he was such a huge actor, and then just somewhere it just, like, clicked, and now he's dressing like Michael Jackson, and, and you know. And, and a lot of the kids, you know, on the sitcoms and Facts of Life and different strokes and in their heyday, those are the kids that I came up with in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and these kids were wildly famous. It was before the Internet. There was three networks on TV, and so when you had one of them, you know, you became insanely famous. I did a show called Real People on NBC, which was a reality show with Skip Stevenson and Sarah Purcell. It's a big show, one of the first ones. And so I had a lot of visibility. The difference that I had was a really great family. And I had a, I had a tough dad. I had a loving mom. Uh, there was discipline in the house. You know, it was a reward to be able to do these things for me. It was, I'm going to say reward, as though I was... Um, 
given it. But if you didn't do your other, if you didn't do your chores, if you weren't a good guy in the house, yeah, you didn't get to keep doing it. I wasn't the big meal winner, and my mom was the one who was really with me consistently because my dad was working. We had other brothers and sisters. Um, and she was the one who was, but she wasn't the stage mom. She was always in the background. And as I've gotten older, I realize a lot of the sacrifices that she made so that I was able to do it because it was a burden and really that the whole family made. I mean, that's, you know, what it's, you're, it's draining what you're saying. A hundred percent. Like my, my dad was very strict to me. My mom was always supportive of my career. And especially once I moved out here and I moved out here later in life, 26, there's no one that gets more enjoyment out of seeing me succeed now than my mom. Same. And my mom definitely gave me some advice and definitely advised against a lot of things. What are, what is the first thing that you did that your mom or dad explicitly advised against or just disapproved of? Um, well, it, it's, <laughs> I'd say one funny story. I got um, I got into commercials at two and a half. Two and a half. So I started acting. You're the Gerber baby. Uh, well, <laughs> Gerber's a little a little past that because I was talking a little bit. Uh, doing commercials in New York City, I'd done like about a hundred commercials by the time I was ten. So I just had this kind of crazy aptitude for it, and nobody knew, and no one in my family was actors or anything. I just kind of started going on auditions, and I was getting a lot of them. Um, I went on a commercial for. Dan and yogurt. Love it. Um, I think it was around three, three and a half. Big yogurt fan. Okay, I walk in <laughs> and um, I sit down. And I, I, I vividly remember this uh, this audition. Sat down. They said, hey, there was a little cup of Dan and yogurt. It was like the purple one. I think it was blueberry. And they said, so, Peter, what do you think's in that Dan and yogurt? And I was, you know, maybe I was probably four. I was like right at that age. I said, I don't know. Maybe some poopy. It <laughs> <laughs> laughed. I left. Go home. My mom said, how did it go? I said, oh, it went fine. You know, just you were doing a bunch of auditions. This was the life. The agent called home and said, you know, we just got a call from the casting director that said, you know, your little shit son <laughs> said in the room, what's in the Dan and yogurt? He said, maybe there's some poopy in it. So my parents were really pissed. They're like, you know, not because I blew an audition, <laughs> because it's a disrespectful way to sure, talk about. But you called it poopy. Right. You called your I was. I used a respectful You're four word. Four years old. But I basically said there's shit in it, right? So they were they were pissed. They're like, you know, you don't speak about things that way. You don't speak about people that way. The next day, we get a call that the ad agency had reviewed it, and the Dannon people did love me so much. I got the commercial. <laughs> so we're calling sort of, it shit, dude. Yeah, so it's sort of an odd kind of parenting thing but bring the poopy the guy thing. back in here so then i think it creates this weird parenting dynamic where it's like all right i guess being honest is good um but that was one of the first kinds i remember my dad was really pissed because he's like you know you don't speak to people that way you don't use those words like yeah. that and he was a very strict guy um but then it was sort of sweet justice for um kind of getting it and also i was pretty blind as a kid like i've always worn glasses and people think in christmas story and everything that they were a prop i can't see at all i was a first row student wow. young but yeah. not first row grades it was because i just couldn't see yeah um and i used to spill all my food uh and it drove my dad bananas and there were times i had to eat on the floor um because <laughs> <Jesus> Christ, <laughs> because we had we all it's gonna end up, up there anyway just <laughs> kind down of there, just blind motherfucker. There. but they didn't know i was blind <laughs> then i was diagnosed being blind and then he felt really bad because he's like oh god he just can't see so let me ask you do your did your parents approval actually matter to you like you hundred a hundred percent yeah i mean that was kind of the barometer 
it wasn't like if something is a law, you know, that you don't do it. It's if your mom or dad think that it's the right or wrong thing to do. Sure. And just like a lot of kids, you know, the, you would get the anger, but when you got the disappointment, it was the most heartbreaking. Oh, okay. You know, it was just crushing. It was soul crushing to me. And I always looked up to my dad. My dad worked very hard. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment that we grew up in. There was six of us. With you doing hundreds of commercials. There was no money back then, dude. This is pre-Nickelodeon and Disney. This isn't like the Olsen twins. How much is it? How much you make in a commercial? I made a few hundred bucks. Really? Yeah. And some were regional, so there's no residuals. They were buyouts. There were kids' salaries and then adult salaries. The adults were making the money. Yeah, you missed out on that. I missed out on that timing. Yeah, I missed out on that timing. Hungry Eyes. That's the next song. From 1969's A Portrait of Merle Haggard. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I do like this song, but I was a little disappointed that it wasn't the uh, other Hungry Eyes. Yeah, right. It's- Hungry Eyes. I get you burning the feeling. I was like, no, oh, really? Dude. I was like, Merle wrote that? And then I put it on. Uh, this is this is about mama. <laughs> this this 1969 song should be not be confused with the 87 dance tune from Dirty Dancing by Eric Carmen. Uh, this is the first song that feels bigger than the rest. Uh, there's orchestration in it. Uh, mm-hmm. It adds so much. It's such a nice touch over the guitar and the chorus is a showstopper. Peter, play it. Mama never had the luxury she wanted But it wasn't cause my daddy didn't try She only One more reason for my mama's hungry eyes. This song is so fucking beautiful. Like, mama never had the luxury she wanted, but it was, wasn't because my daddy didn't try. She only wanted things she really needed. One more reason for my mama's hungry eyes. This one actually really affected me. Like, as I listened to it, I got a little choked up. Um, like I said earlier, like, my mom is the reason I we are in this place, the reason I'm making this, because if not, I would have been living back in Maryland. God only knows what I'd be doing. Uh, and so it just, like, hit me. This, was, this one is also inspired by his mother's sacrifices as a single mom after his dad died, like you said, at, when Merle was nine. It's often referred to by the title Mama's Hungry Eyes. However, it's also a tribute to the Great Depression-era Oklahomans who lived in labor camps to survive and took the risk to move their families out west to California. And we'll be hearing more of that theme uh, being proudly translated in Oki later. Now, let's just start from the beginning. What was your childhood like? And if any, were there any sacrifices that your parents made uh, to get you? A hundred percent. Tons. And you don't realize it at the time, but as you get older, you learn to appreciate it. Yeah. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment in New York City with... Um, my half brother and sister from my dad's previous marriage and my brother. So there were four kids and my parents in about a 450 square foot apartment. So we grew up really tight, but you don't know what you don't know. Um, we still managed to play hide and seek somehow in this tiny place. Um, went to, this was New York in the seventies. So it was sort of an, it was a much pre Giuliani. 
Yeah. Cleanup. So, so it was just, it was just a it was shithole? A, it was a shithole. Times Square was full of peep shows and an absolute shithole. Not the Disneyfied version of it today. And a lot of the auditions would be there, too, because like the old Broadway video in those kind of places were all there. Oh, yeah. Right? So you'd go to Times Square. My mom would just squeeze my hand tightly and just say, do not let go. As she walked me through, you know, the vagrants. Were they were they actors or, or zero? My mom would take me and my little brother and my older brother, Neil, to the park. And yeah, you try to think of stuff to do with kids. And some people would say, oh, they're very cute. Maybe they could do commercials. Her level of aspiration was maybe a little print ad, something for the scrapbook. You know, maybe they could get on TV once. She took me to one agency. They said, oh, no, they're too fat. They'll never work. You were a chunky kid. I. I, I don't I don't think so, but the, apparently this agent did. This fucker. <laughs> Look at these and, chunky motherfuckers. Blind, chunky-ass motherfucker. Fuck. Took me to another agent. Uh, they're like, they're too ugly. Um, so, and she went to a third agency, and they're like, yeah, these these kids could probably work. And the first audition I had was a commercial for Geritol, the multivitamin. Okay. I was just like a kid, and it was Betty Buckley, the mom on It Is Enough. Okay. I got the part. All I had to do was sit there. And I remember being terrified of the camera pointing at me. And I was probably making a couple hundred bucks for the day. I wouldn't behave myself. I threw a truck at it that they gave me. Um, and then the director said, what do you love? I said, candy. And he said, what if we give you some candy? Will you come down? I said, absolutely. And he gave me, they went out and got some chocolate and some gum. And I was the most polite kid for the rest of the day. So probably 50 cents in candy did a lot more than whatever the yeah. paycheck was. But then I loved it. And then I understood what it was. So I grew up doing a lot of commercials, played some sports in New York City. Um, you know, you play a lot in the alleys. You play a lot in the schools. It's a lot of concrete jungle there. Yeah. A lot of stoop ball, a lot of stick ball, a lot of that stuff growing up. Um, and then started to work kind of more and more. And by about age nine, my dad wanted to move to Phoenix because you could get a lot more for your money. He was oh, able yeah. to travel for his work. And then we went to a house like with a huge yard and a pool. Um, oh, that must have been incredible. It was Nine. an unbelievable yeah. move from growing up in the city and trying to figure out. But the cool thing about growing up in New York was you had a lot of freedom. Like I would meet a friend for lunch at nine. You know, you'd take the train, you take the bus. You have a lot of independence yeah. that you don't get in other places. Um and I could walk down certain streets, like if there were doormen at some buildings on streets, my mom would let me walk down them alone and then go somewhere and say, take this route. And then you could always stay on your four block radius, which was big. So I'd ride my big wheel a lot and you just play a lot of different games with kids. So as you've gotten older, like what sacrifices have you now noticed that your parents gave up to make sure you guys could have that that experience? Um, their time, a lot of their independence a lot of their time together um and it wasn't for their own gain it was probably to in some way enrich my life and hope that there was something positive that would come out of it um my mom would have to sit on sets and a lot of what she endured was the preconceived notion that she was probably a bitchy stage mom who was pushing her kid into this because all the other kids really had that like my big difference in the reason I was able to come out the other side good was because I had a really good family. And that was the kind of sad distinction that I recognized as I got older. A lot of these kids, they would dump like a surrogate to some guardian. Yeah. That would be a sort of odd guy that was watching their teenage kid and then pulling them into bad stuff. 
you get a lot of power as a kid and you can feel it, you know, like you begin to realize like, hey, you know, if I don't want to do something, none of these people on the set can do anything because I'm in the scene. So if I say, nope, everything stops, you know, it's almost like a game. You can you begin to realize it and that power can really fuck with you, I think. Because it's it's there's there's really nothing else where you have that. Maybe some kids that go through athletics and you hear of the high school quarterback syndrome and oh yeah, but kind I of mean, coming over the actor, crest. If you've already shot a few scenes and they've invested a couple weeks, it, and like, you sense it, yeah, right, and it's not real. Did you throw your? Did you throw any of your like weight around when besides anytime, poopy, besides and, poopy and, yogurt, which actually got me the part? Yeah, um, anytime I think I, I ever that ever reared its head, it was quickly snuffed out by my mom. Um, who yeah, gave dude. me the perspective. And so she was always in the back. You know, a lot of these other stage moms would bring their kids in and demand certain things and want because they knew the power and they were using it and abusing it. So I felt bad for my mom at times because I would see that she, that people would treat her as though she was a bitch or even, or even give her that, why the hell are you even doing this with your kid? Yeah. Like, why would you even do this? You know, you, you know this is a fucked up business. But it doesn't have to be. It's like anything else. If you have a good perspective with it, it can be great. So I got to travel a lot. I got to meet a lot of great people. I got to learn a sense of responsibility young. I probably had a lot of friends that were older and related to older people as a result of it. And I probably matured in some ways quicker. I didn't really go to school. I got my GED when I was 15. Um, I was homeschooled pretty much my whole life. No, I did junior college for like a year, but then I never went to college because you already learned it on the streets Beats. of hollywood that's right the school of hard knocks baby our school colors are black and blue fuck yeah dude <laughs> all right this takes us into probably i'd say this is one of the top uh so my favorite this song. is your favorite this is this down. is just this, like I, right? this is the one i own it I, I texted you about i yeah, it, it really love is. this one silver wings meant a lot to me as i listened to it just right from the beginning peter play the intro Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere in flight. That is so fucking beautiful. Once he's, I mean, it's just such a great song and it's just a song about someone that he loves leaving on an airplane now this uh merle recalled the story of this mournful song to the uk magazine uncut it was a written it was written on a plane a 707 coming out of phoenix arizona los angeles going to la with bonnie owens and uh he said i looked out and there were silver wings just gleaming and I thought what a great premise for a song and I think it's also very interesting to note that Bonnie Owens was actually Buck Owens first wife and another star of the Bakersfield sound scene she also made a hit duet uh, with hit duet album with Merle and they divorced in 1978 now not taking anything away from your current happiness, but do you have any regrets or wonder of any like ones that flew away? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we all do. Yeah, right. I mean, as you look back in the rearview mirror, things you would have liked to have handled differently, time I could have probably spent better in other areas. You know, I was very work focused 
through a lot of my 20s and 30s, I didn't pursue a lot of relationships on a longer yeah, you were just level. Just, I was, you know, you're 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 kind of dating. You're moving through things. If they don't fit you, selfishly, you kind of move on. Yeah. Um. And so, and, and then I think you kind of, you know, probably inevitably start attracting only a certain person that will fit that. That might not be a kind of long term fit. Um. It, but I think one valuable lesson that I really try to live my life by is don't make the same mistake twice. I read actually that um, that Merle had, as we said, gone to prison. And afterwards, was once he started making some music, was on a show with Johnny Cash. And, Johnny, and he said, you know, the first time I saw you was in San Quentin. And Johnny said, oh, I don't remember you in the band with me up there. He said, no, 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 no. I was... I was insane. I was insane. Last prisoner, five, seven, three, two, six. Right. And Johnny um, complimented him for being so honest and kind of embracing that. Yeah. And I think even realized, like, wow, you know, you really kind of embody what a lot of other people glorify through the music. Yeah. There was, you know, not a shame that came with it, but in ownership of it, he was able to write... He wrote a lot of prison songs. Um, Merle, we have one coming up, but he wrote a lot of songs about specifically being in prison. Yeah. And so I think you try to take a page out of that book. You really try to be as reflective as you can. And I think being honest with yourself, it's a good, it's a good quality to have. It's something that my dad taught me young. You know, if you can't be honest with yourself, you're not going to have any ability. And it sucks, man. I mean, it fucking sucks because you got to look in the mirror and deal with it. But you've got to be able to talk about it. All right. Th- this is kind of a dark uh, skew from, from this. But speaking of Silver Wings, uh, in 1986, you were a spokesperson for the Young Astronaut Program. I was. And you were at the Kennedy Space Center during the Space Shuttle Challenger tragedy. Mm-hmm. You were there. Like, How did that incident shape your perspective on life? Uh, immensely. I think f- we hear this expression... Um, through JFK, like the loss of innocence, right? The JFK assassination for that. I was, I think, around 14. Okay. Um, It was, you know, this is too long of a story to to go into, but the bite-sized version, I was the spokesperson for this. There was a huge press tour that was planned for myself and Krista McAuliffe when she came back to do Good Morning America and all the morning shows. It was to promote awareness and math and science. And we were in a little competition between Japan and Russia at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was mid-80s. So, you know, math and science and competing with technologies as we headed into the year 2000 was a big goal for everybody. And so we were trying to promote studying math and science for kids. Um, And I was there at the event basically sitting with uh, Krista's um, class and her son and her parents. We were all there on the launch pad. Uh, And it was a very... Um, very instant, mournful feeling. And the crazy thing about it was there was like all the pre-height, you were all looking past when they landed. There was never, you know, what if that was discussed or we hope when she gets back, it was all just when she gets back, you know, when she was the first citizen to go into space. Yeah. Um, what that was going to do for school and teaching and the program. And, and it, you were looking so far ahead that this thought had never even entered your yeah, mind it's, and it's instant and there was no hope it's not like you know it's missing or someone's gone missing okay we'll find them yeah it was 
instant. It was an explosion and it was instantly over and everybody witnessed it. And so the processing of it, I think, was very challenging. And I looked at a lot of the video afterwards of the classrooms because it was in every oh, class. I, I, was, I was six years old. I was sitting. I mean, we right. were all watching it. I, I, I remember the teacher came up. That happened, and then she just, they just like either, I forget either they turned the TV off or they just turned the television, and they're like, okay, and then it was just nobody knew what to do. Right, and then it was the look on everyone's faces that was bewilderment, right? It was was silence, and it was confusion, sadness. Um, People weren't even crying yet because they were so shocked. Yeah. It was the same feeling, and we then had to, because we had been bussed out to the tarmac. We were on the furthest part out at the space center that you can be to watch these things. So, and they had a little grandstand and we were all kind of guests of everything. And then I had gotten some phone calls that night from the people who were involved. And then I went on the Today Show uh, the next morning and talked about it um, and kind of talked about, tried to bring somewhat of a positive spin. So it was, it was a lot. How do you spin, how can like, like, how can you even, I don't even know how you could spin that. Like. Like, like, how do you like, that's such a, especially to be 14 and then, you know, they're putting you on television to talk about it. I mean, that's gotta be like, it was a surreal experience. Yeah. I did it via satellite in Phoenix. Um, just to, I think it was with Jane Pauley on the today show at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, you try to recall and, and what you had felt, but, you know, try to be as respectful, I guess, and, sure. and positive as you can that, you know, this doesn't, it changes things, but it can't stop everything. It's I can imagine, man, just having to like to really see it straight up. Um, so, yeah, working man's blues. Let's go into that. Quite an intro. What a what an intro. Jesus. Uh, dude, thank you for, for being honest about that. Yeah, I was course. I wanted to talk about that because I, I, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to have been there. Um, 1969, A Portrait of Merle Haggard. Now, this is a great song. Upbeat, fun. Literally talking about how the middle class is going to work till the day they die. Uh, this is basically him just giving his shout out to all of his fans. Haggard poses also. Also, he posed for the cover of this single in a full business suit, tie, watch, and all. And it was a. It was kind of a cool solidarity with the audience and a sympathetic bit of self-deprecating humor as to say like don't i look ridiculous in this the suit (laughs) even seems to be tailored in a just this side of dandy fashion just to make a point peter go to minute one second oh three sometime i think about leaving do a little bumming around i want to throw my bills out the window catch a train to another town i'm back working Gotta buy my kids a brand new pair of shoes I drank a little beer in a tavern Cry a little bit of these working man blues Here comes that working man I love that sentence. I just love that those lyrics. It's so good. Uh, this is a perfect example of the country music so- subgenre known as the Bakersfield Sound from Bakersfield, California. Uh, which was the locus of a back-to-basics breed of country music in the 60s and the 70s, popularized by Merle, Buck Owens, and the Buckaroos. It was kind of, and it's just funny that you talked about the two musics that you like, it was the kind of a punking of country music, removing the slick studio production to focus on the bare essentials. Uh, This is the story of the stark realities of the American dream. 
Check out the weary American working man's pride in this line. I ain't never been on welfare. That's one place I won't be. Like, that's the line in the sand for him. He's got a liter of kids, has a litter of kids, has worked his whole life, and drinks a lot and cries about his sorrows. But at least he's not asking for a handout. He's accepted right. that this is his life. And you can see why this would connect with a big audience in America at the time. Speaking of work, and we were talking about this earlier, about your relationship with Vince uh, and the, how you met him. In 1990, as you said, you were in the CBS School Break special. What was it called? The, the Fourth, Fourth Man. Man. Where you played... <laughs> the Fourth Man of a Relay Track Team. I love that. A teen who got hooked on steroids, and Vince played your best friend. Now, you were already a pro, and clearly by then you had grown up and were expanding your range as an actor. And then later in the 90s, you had a career reinvention of sorts when you got behind the camera and started down the road of where you are today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Now, was that out of necessity or was that always an aspiration? Always an aspiration for sure started in the early 90s i just started getting some traction in the late 90s like i started wanting to do that early i was always the kid on the sets that you know when the camera would turn around you know when you'd shoot your close-up right and then it was ready for mine yeah the whole set turns around the lights move around it could be 20 minutes uh everyone goes back to their trailers a lot of time i would hang around the set and want to watch i would ask questions They'd let me operate a camera for a shot. Generally, on every movie I did, you know, put my eye on the lens and yeah. actually do it. You know, um, I was curious always, and so I wanted to translate that. But I knew that I needed to learn the business, so I started at the ground floor. I didn't just try you to PA'd, dude. I was a post-production PA, assistant editor, loader. Back when nonlinear editing was just starting, like on Laserdisc-based editing systems, I'd yeah. have to load in the discs and try to copy all the footage. I slept on edit room floors because we were doing low-budget shit movies. Yeah. So it wasn't smart to go home. You'd lose an hour of work. Um, I kind of ground through a lot of that and then tried making like shorts and directing some music videos, anything I'd get my hands on to, in a tactile way, do so I could really try to learn those things and then started to produce not till i got like really into my late 20s early 30s okay do you feel like your your strengths lie stronger in the behind the camera than in front or are you so vastly different but yeah. i mean probably in some ways i still will do cameos and things was the last thing you did cameo in um all shit that you've done 
all shit that I've done. Yeah, yeah. you got to throw yourself. You're the stand. Yeah, of- and like Vince, <laughs> right? Totally. Like I did a thing in the breakup. Like when we did it, and Vince is like, "Will you play this part?" Yeah. Um, I'll do that. I did a thing in Iron Man. Um, and so I don't really do other acting other than some other stuff. I'll have a couple other things coming up that I can't talk about right now, but yeah. that you'll see. Yeah. Um, which is fun. So I enjoy doing it. Um, and I'll probably start pushing a little more into it. Okay. Again, but I just I kind of had to put it there. I got to a point where I needed to kill it in a weird way. Was that to hard? Push somewhat, yeah. But I think for and I don't know that it was the right approach. I don't think I would do it that way again. What did you do? I just kind of had to say I don't act anymore, and uh, then okay. like push into this. I had to switch the identity. Yeah, no, you know, I get it. I and get it's it. like, and yeah, and there were some. There was it was getting challenging, I think, getting parts and trying to navigate what Hollywood was because, you know, you carry the reputation. I was recognizable and I don't know that that was a great thing. I mean, now it's a very cool thing when you're in something. But there was a minute that that wasn't fresh or cool. Yeah. You know, it was just not great. Um, And so I kind of in some ways, I think, just said, all right, I'm done. I'm done. My identity is this. And, you know, kind of grabbed it full force and really tried to to learn it and then to push through into other stuff. No, it's completely. Okie from Muskoki. 1969, it came out. It's one of his singles. And it's also one of the biggest songs that he's done. Uh, Peter, play the opening verse because that's my favorite part. We don't smoke marijuana. In Muskogee We don't take our trips on LSD We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street Cause we like living right and being free I mean, I, I texted you. I was like, this is the squarest shit I have the ever read. best, dude. It's, it is. Listen, it's, it's such a good song. I think this song is, is kind of funny, but I totally get it. Merle didn't like the people were giving up their lives in Vietnam while the hippies protested and did drugs and, funked, and fucked a bunch. So basically, it came out of the, it just came out of the height of the Vietnam War when the counterculture voice and the baby boomers... Uh, anti-war movement had finally come, become louder than the American right or wrong positions of the World War II surviving parents. On the surface, it appeared to be either a square redneck anthem or a bri- brilliantly satirical novelty hit written by Merle and his former drummer, Roy Edward Burris. Oki from Muskogee grew from the two trading one-liners about conservative, insulted, uh, or it's conservative, ins- insulated, small-town life in middle America. Merle was disheartened about the anti-war protests he saw from the youth who had their great music and great lives and great freedom, and he wanted to support the troops who were being sent to fight, often to die, to protect those freedoms. However, in 2009, Merle explained that it was a character study of himself in 69. He said... It was the photograph that I took of the way things looked through the eyes of a fool. And most of America was under the same assumptions I was. As it stayed around now for 40 years, I sing the song now with a different attitude on stage. I've become educated. I play it now with a different projection. 
It's a different song now. I'm different now. So it's almost like that he he's just like I guess he felt like it was a little too strong when he wrote it. I think you grow you grow you evolve, right? You For know, sure. you you feel strongly. Just as a lot of the hippies probably look back and go, you know what? Maybe we could have been more productive in our oh, message. Yeah, right? dude. Just fucking and all the drugs and dancing might not have been the best table image to get the message across. Yeah, but man, right? I bet that was fun, though. It was fun, but these guys were having a good time at the town square. Where, For sure. Where white lightning is the biggest thrill of all. For sure, dude. Uh, this was also named the Country Music Association Single and Album of the Year in 1970. Now, uh, we hear and we see and we hear this voice in our popular culture, the confused, disgruntled, and increasingly marginalized American white male whose resistance is just a failure to accept, and that world is changing around him. Archie Bunker, Al Bundy, and now Frank Murphy. Yep. The lead character of Bill Burr's animated sitcom, uh, F is for Family, that is produced by you and Vince Vaughn, and I'm fortunate enough to play DJ Howlin' Hank on Oh, yeah. Ow! Fuck yeah, dude. Even though it takes place in the 70s, Frank Murphy's modern updates are the kind of honesty and language that wasn't allowed on television until now. He just says how he feels. What is your take on that type of character? I love that character. Yeah. That is, A... Doing a show that's period, right, we can have a lot of fun with our humor because it's not today. So all the groups that might be sensitive to things that you say and say you can't say that on TV, you're putting it into the mouths of characters in the past. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a huge gift to be able to do that. It's a huge it's a great opportunity to look at the rearview mirror to point fun at the good and bad of both of that. Right. Because. A lot of Frank's parenting in some ways is right. The helicopter parenting today, kids aren't given enough freedom. Yeah. You used to leave and say, come home when the streetlights are on. That was it. And figure it the fuck out and don't bother me about it. Uh, it's great, but I think a lot of the things in society have evolved into somewhat of a better place as well. So you can poke fun at all sides of it, but Frank would have played this song for sure. Oh, Frank for was sure, with dude. it. He was a Nixon guy. Yeah. Um, and I think anytime you have you know, a changing world around a character that refuses to change. It's funny because, as you said, Archie Bunker is very much the same way. And he's a guy that's eternally Ralph Cramden, right? He's a guy that's eternally looking for respect. Yeah. He's never going to get it. And he's going to hold on to the old ideals and the old ways, no matter what comes at him. And that's a great character. And it's also a relatable character. And by the way, Look, all the way back, you know, whatever the Roaring Twenties were doing to that generation, driving them nuts, I'm sure, yeah. the one that had preceded. <laughs> you know, this goes on and on. We all feel that today it's always different. It's not. You know, this pattern has been repeating itself. Certain things get more and more and more extreme, I think. Yeah. You know, and things take a larger stranglehold. But, you know, you're seeing it today in a Trump era of a president who, who was elected by people that felt as though their voice was being diminished. And came out to say, hey, we are people too. You're seeing it repeat itself, and now you're seeing a counterculture to that of socialism. That was a bad word about eight years ago. If you called somebody that, you would say, how dare you call me that? I'm not that. And now it's kind of a badge of honor. Yeah. So, you know, these things evolve as things go on. But the idea of a counterculture to what felt like the mainstream is great. And he sang for his audience again. And of course, as he got older, I read too that he started smoking pot for medical reasons as he got older. Merle? Yeah, a doctor yeah, told him to Merle. do it. And there's some video where he smokes it with Willie. 
So, you know, for him, yeah, we don't smoke ma- marijuana like- in Muskogee, right? Is like, okay, and now I and and now I do. I think he said both. He was angered at the time, but also he created a sort of ironic. Like you, because you text him, and you're like, "Man, this thing is square." Yeah, it's, um, it's, it but they was... but they refer to themselves as square in the song. That's true, right? Like they they know it, they own it, and it's sort of I think as outlandish as the hippies were to him and their crazy free love. This was his sort of 180 degree antithesis. Like, oh yeah, you think that's funny? Here's what we like. Complete. What are what is what are you most unabashedly proud of um america yeah yeah absolutely um i think about that a lot now because it's very it's you know very popular to talk about all the bad things about it and i think we forget all the greatness and all the opportunity that this place creates i mean we're sitting here in your apartment doing a podcast on the internet that you know we can freely upload we can say whatever we want you know, there's a there's a lot of things that come with that that people take for granted as you look around the world. There's a lot of places you cannot do that. Yeah, I, and a lot of people in those places can't get out. So I'm all about voicing to make things better, of course. But in the process, don't don't not recognize yeah. the greatness of the things we do have. So it's. Yeah. You know, so I am very proud of that. And I think it's smart to maintain that because yeah. we should be proud of where we are and we should be grateful for where we I are. I agree. White Line Fever. It's another single from 1969. I like this song. That's all I wrote. I like the intro. Play it, Peter. White Line Fever. A sickness. Born down deep within my soul White line fever For a minute you look at the title You're like, okay, this is about blow This Merle's right? a huge Merle's, he's like, he's, He didn't right? say it in Okie from his Skokie He said, we don't smoke pot, we don't right. do LSD He never said cocaine Right, so he never you said, think about it but then you realize that yeah. years on the road yeah. give you that kind of droning white center line, white line fever. Yeah, this and is this is a tribute to the truckers. Uh, but when you really listen, it's way deeper and darker than that. It's not just the word world weary and world worn. This is his lifetime chronic sickness. He'll keep moving, but he'll never escape it. Um I do like this song a lot. What are some of your demons and how have they derailed you? Um, I think I have had a tendency to uh, lose myself in work, you know, as an excuse and probably pile on extra work and unnecessary work to avoid certain other things. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot like, you know, he's traveling, right? He's on the road. So he's running. Constantly on the run yeah. away from structure. You know, he's, it's a song about always moving. And, and, and I think I've done that a lot. I'm trying to be much more conscious to do that. And at the sacrifice of family and friends and others, I think that, you know, you can justify in your head. It's where I'm supposed to be. It's probably, to be honest, where I feel most comfortable because working. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, well, it makes you happy, and if it makes yeah, you, that's well, it makes you me. Want. It probably makes me safest. 
probably on a deeper level. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think we go to where we feel like, yeah, it makes me happy. But I mean, you know, video games make me happy. But, you know, I, I can't play them all day. You know, and I think it, it, so it's it's sort of where you feel safest, I think, probably is the truth where you feel most comfortable. So that's that's something that I'm working on. You know, you try to get more discriminating maybe about the projects that you do. You can't just say yes to everything or grind something out. If yeah. it's not going to work, you got to get out of it. Yeah. Can you set up healthier boundaries in the situation so that you're not in so were unhealthy you, situations? Were you just getting pulled into projects and you didn't even realize you were doing it? I like, think getting pulled in but probably immersing myself in areas that I probably didn't even need to be. You could have delegated more. You could have done it's things like, dude, differently. You don't, you don't have to make that spinach dip. We got a craft service guy. You're just, no, I got to no. work. My crew's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I No, I can see that. I'm the, I'm the same way. I mean, listen, I, I have, you know, I stand up comedy and, and this and just the things that I love have taken away like from, from me, like finding a girlfriend and really, cause I'm like, I do want to settle down, but then it's like when I get into a relationship and then it, I start, seeing that it's taking away from this that I the thing you know that's about finding the right person though I really believe that for you dude because I've seen a lot of people who have been able to create that in their lives where they've been able to get it and the person supports and loves what you do they're not resentful I think you have to if you're looking for that if you really want that you have to set your compass there and you'll recognize it when you'll see it and you'll be able to avoid it like that yeah you're because every girl that it's i've been true. with it was like i was there i was their life and it was right. like when and i so wanted you got to know that and that's yeah. you don't set yourself up in a situation to be that you can find somebody that compliments you and loves and respects what you do I have a lot of comedian friends i'm sure you do too oh, that yeah. are married they have kids they're on the road four days a week they're gone from the house with kids they make it work they make it work well yeah you know, they found a great partner. Each other did. You know, there's sacrifices on both ends, but you find the one that compliments you to do it. All right. Well, the next one was I Can't Stop Loving You. Uh, it's a live song from 1969. Very good song. I love his voice, uh, but he did not write this. It's just a great song. So make sure everybody listens to I Can't Stop Loving You live. Uh, this takes us to um, another song that. I just, it's just. This is probably my favorite. It's of so funny, man. The fight inside of me from 1970 <laughs> from the it's album of the same name. Peter, play that motherfucking chorus. They're walking on the fight inside of me. Running down a wheel of life. Our fighting minute fought and died to keep. If you don't love it, leave it. Let this song that I'm singing be a warning. When you hit my buskiba dee ba doo, it's kaba dee ba dee buskiba doo. This is just so funny to me because this is what I love about it, Peter, is that Merle, don't take no shit. Country star Toby Keith called this the original angry American song. I love that. This is Oki from Muskogee's proud and peaceful opposition to the threat of cultural change putting its foot down. It's like he's saying it was cute when you hippies wore flowers in your hair at those rallies, but now you either get in line or get knocked the fuck out. Here's the difference between being between proud and healthy patriotism and straight up jingoism. For those that don't know what jingoism is, it's nationalism in the form of aggressive foreign policy, which 
includes wars. Uh, you love you don't song. love it? Leave it. No, Let I, this song that I'm singing be a warning. I mean, he's he's pissed off in it. It's catchy as fuck. I'll, I'll say that straight away. And so it's definitely something I enjoy. Now, here's a question that goes along with this song. When in a personal confrontation is peace no longer an option and you think it's the best to actually get violent? Because that's basically what When you're genuinely say. physically threatened. And so I think preemptive, you know, or interventions in other people's fights... Is what tends to cause a lot of the. Have you had? Have here. you had a? Have you gotten into any fights in your life? Yeah, sure. One, give me, give me. What's the? I'll give you the. Uh, give uh, me an example. I'll, I'll, give me a Merle example of a Peter Billy. Okay, I, I'll, I'll give you a good young one. I was, I think, eight. I was in New York and I'd play in this little alley, and there was all the high rises around, and this yeah. little shit named Daniel would lean out his window on the fifth story and whip things at me. He wasn't throwing Nerf balls. He'd whip golf balls, baseballs. Plates, glasses. Jesus Christ. Five stories down at me when I was throwing the ball Fucking against Daniel. the wall. I'd throw try to throw them back up. I'd flick them off. I'd say, fuck you if I ever see you. And sure enough, one day I was outside of my place and saw him. And the second is he had physically threatened me. Oh, yeah. Like he was literally throwing stuff to hurt me. Yeah. And we absolutely went at it like crazy, swinging. Our group let it go because we knew we kind of had to settle the score. And we got some good licks in, and then I threw in a big pile of dog shit on the ground, and that was the game changer for him. He cried and then ran away. Now, interesting thing is, our parents found out, obviously, because we were both pretty scratched up, Yeah, made us introduce and shake hands, and the second we shook hands, we became really good friends. And then hung out and did a lot of stuff together and maintained a friendship for a long, long time. Oh, uh, yeah, but you threw him in shit, though, so you I won. I did. Yeah. I definitely won the fight. <laughs> you could always sure. bring that up later. You want yeah. me to throw you in shit again? I'll, I'll do throw it, Throw you in that shit. Give me the Atari controller. I'm playing. <laughs> Stay a little longer. I love this song. This sh- I just wrote, this shit swings. Uh, Peter, play the chorus, because this is the catchiest fucking song on the record. Stay all night, stay a little longer, dance all night, dance a little longer, pull off the coat, throw it in the corner, don't see why you don't stay a little longer. George Branch on the piano. You know what I what I love the most about Stay a Little Longer is that he gives these shout outs throughout the whole song. It's like his little Merle's like little hip hop, like, yo, but play that fiddle real quick. This the whole song. It's super fun. Uh, it might be my favorite song on the record up there with Silver Wings. Uh, and I was literally dancing in my apartment when I heard this. Now, this is a 1970 tribute to the best damn fiddle player in the world or my salute to Bob Willis. This song comes from a tribute album. Basically, uh, Merle wanted to do during his formative country years uh, to give respect to Bob Willis. Who are the your most inspiring career influences in your heroes? Well, I I came up originally as an actor, so I think as you evolve, we talked about this, right? You start to study the greats. Yeah. So you look at De Niro. Um, you look at the guys who seem to do it as in their heyday as effortlessly as possible, or who were pushing realism forward i guess i was always sort of more attracted to that than the stylized things of kind of you know the 50s or the poppy stuff of the 60s as acting has evolved it's gone through so many kind of facets and still exists in so many different formats you know and it they're all kind of somewhat somewhat accepted 
you know, the kind of sitcom performances that can be monster hits, you know, like a friends can be as big as it gets. And then you can obviously have, you know, a lot of the realism that came out of the seventies are probably some of the coolest movies. Oh yeah. I think Hollywood. Right. But I mean, that's a response to, you know, a lot of the movies that were coming out of the fifties and still in the sixties where everybody still kind of talk like this, Yeah, you know, and it was, there was something fake and it was the polishedness of, the studio system and the way people stood and acted just wasn't real at all. And so you get a response to that. You know, uh, this music that we're breaking down is the response to, you know, a counterculture that he sees that, that he thinks is full of shit. So he writes this song to it. That's the great thing about it. I put NWA in the same category as this stuff. You know, that's, I mean, you still listen to that stuff. That's his, that's his authentic, Straight out of Compton is as authentic of a record as it gets. Yeah. I mean, those kids are just singing about their experiences, and you get the total sense that they're not singing to be famous, which is what I always say about country. They're just singing to be heard, right? They just want their story told. Sure, they want someone to listen to what they have to say, and it's far, it's way. They're, I'm sure that way exceeded any of their expectations or dreams. They were sick of getting pushed around and how they felt they were being treated. And they said, we got something to say and we'll use music as a platform to do it. How much we've regressed. Our biggest stars now get birthed on a karaoke contest called American Idol. Yeah. You don't even have to write your shit, dude. I mean, all you do is perform other people's stuff and we crown them as somehow a great singer and, and performer. We've got, I think, two or three covers on here. But on the hundred on the record, oh, they're all there's, Merle. you know, yeah. I mean, it's like 90 of them are written by Merle. Yeah. I mean, you it was about having a voice, a point of view, um, something special, something unique, something to say. And that's been stripped so much out of music. Well, what are uh, some of those? What are some of the lessons that you learn from some of those heroes? Authenticity, you know, one big lesson, I think that. I try to learn is this is the worst in movies and in I think our business today. What's going on? What's being made now? Please everybody. You know, the goal is always to get everybody to please. First of all, it's impossible. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to piss off people. You're going to make things that people don't like. You're better to accept that. You're better to make something specific of a unique tone and a great point of view. And I think F is for Family is the perfect example of it. It's not for everybody, but it's for a lot of people. And a lot of people enjoy it. And what they like about it is that it's got its own direct point of view and it's consistently itself. It's not reaching to try to pander or please to things. It's think of even the comedians you like. You know, the evolution of comedy. I mean, the one thing that they were was authentic to who they were and they weren't trying. In fact, they didn't really give a shit. They were happy to have a microphone and Pryor was pissing off a lot of people with what he was saying. You're right. But he was 100% had something to say. He wasn't worried about getting people or getting ratings. He was much more interested in trying to remain as authentic as you can against the system. That, I think, gets harder as people chase likes and other forms of approval. So it's something that you ultimately have to do. And I think try to keep the barometer. If I like it, if it makes me laugh, if I'm happy. I remember when we finished it, the first season, which was a lot of work and had taken a few years to get the show up. And yeah, I remember that. Through development and internal and just even the editing. and you, you're, you're trying to find the tone 
But the tone we were trying to find with that show collectively was something that we were really proud of and liked. And Bill was a great North Star for what that voice was, and we were all collaborating to try to make that work. When it was done, I think it was like a week before it dropped, he just said, you know, no matter what happens, whether they like it or they don't like it, I'm really fucking proud of this show. And I said, I feel the same way, man. I can watch this and say I'm really thrilled that I did it. And that's a great place to work from. No, I got it. California Cotton Fields. It's a 1971 uh, song from Someday We'll Look Back. This song is so beautiful. Peter, play the chorus. California Cotton Fields Where labor camps were filled with worried men with broken dreams California Cotton Fields As close to wealth as daddy ever came this song, even though it was written by Dallas Frazier and Earl Montgomery, still seems like it's about Merle. Uh, it's also one of the most descriptive and poignant stories of this collection. Uh, here we have the promise of what California offered the struggling Oklahoman and the big lie it turned out to be. So many people come to California and especially Los Angeles searching for what they can't find or accomplish in their hometown. We're both transplants, uh, even though we've been here way, way longer than a lot of people. How do you think Los Angeles was going to be, and how did it differ from how it actually was? Well, I spent a lot of time coming out here working as a kid. Yeah. So I was commuting back and forth here. I had apartments at the infamous Oakwood apartment uh, what on, forever. Uh, with the- a barum. On barum? Going over the hell. Yeah, I drive there by that forever. all the time. I, used I had to- like 10 different apartments there throughout my childhood growing up. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time in here. We never wanted to really live here because my parents wanted to raise me outside of here for sure because it can be a, no, a I, very I challenging place to be. Um, but, you know, the great thing about California, like you look back, you know, it's still the gold rush state, right? It's still the promise of gold. It's you can get rich quick. We can find gold. We can find fame. Um, and it doesn't always work out for everybody. And I think most people come here to be famous, not to work. Yeah, you know, there's a big difference. There's, of course, there's a huge for sure. difference. If you just... So I think you're chasing fame out here, and it's why, if that's your goal, you kind of you hear a lot of the stories of the kind of moral depravity <laughs> that preys upon people because they're willing to do anything. Do anything and then you yeah, read this shit it. like how what the fuck are you doing that and sometimes you can feel that because there's a desperation and everybody measures who you are based on what you're doing or your success not kind of the pride in what you do so when, you know if you just did theater and that was it local theater they'd think you know you're a fucking loser so when did you actually move out here then i moved out when i was um 18 18 full and- time and then i lived um, in an apartment with five dudes in a one-bedroom apartment uh, with Vince, actually. We met him, and we had just a bunch of young up-and-comers kind of coming out to do it, and we all had... Living room was about this size. We each had, like, a little like a little mattress on the floor that was our kind of prison corner. Oh, wow. That we all kind of <laughs> had, and then I had a two-drawer dresser that was about a foot and a half high, but then I kept my clothes in, you know, and then you kept some things, like, under your bed sheets. You know, to keep and everyone was really cool and respectful and we'd go out at night and do things. And I played in uh, a lot of pool at um, Hollywood Billiards and a lot of the places around like we'd sort of do stuff at night and then started to get acquainted. Um, So I kind of knew the town a little bit 
And I think, you know, I was the guy that had like a little bit of fame in the group kind of because coming off of Christmas story and a lot of that stuff, I had some of that. So, you know, I could kind of get us into some places sometimes a little bit, you know, and then that obviously changed a lot as some of my friends got super famous. I just want to. I want to ask you, sweet. So, when you were hanging out with Vince and all of them and living together, I mean, was that like the birthing of like the swingers, like kind of? I think to a large lifestyle? degree. Yeah, John had met uh, Vince and John had met each other, Favreau, um, on Rudy, which was um, a film that they did, I think, in like '92. Yeah. And then John was kind of looking at the group and Patrick and a lot of guys that Vince was running with, and a lot of us were kind of running around that area and yeah. in particular East Hollywood and going to the Dresden and the Derby and a lot of those places. And there was something very cool about it. Again, talk about being authentic. They wrote that script swingers, which is about a microcosm. It's a swing scene in East LA. Oh, I know. Right. So everything was about, Oh, no one listens to swing. You know, you got to make it this. So many of the notes were to change it. Both those guys wanted to be in it. They were told they'd never get to get it made. They needed the more popular actors at the time, but they really stuck to their guns of that. And it's a really cool, small subculture, but that they found unique and interesting and appealing to them um, and brought them a lot of joy and it was a lot of fun. So they wrote about it. You could look on paper and say that'll please no one. Oh, yes, it will, because it's authentic world that we know that we like that we're going into. So it's just another great lesson of kind of write and create, believe and own what you know. I believe that. You know, just own it. There's nothing wrong with it. And don't let these fuckers tell you that there's no value in it. I completely agree Make with it that. rich, make it real, make it yours. Uh, that goes into Huntsville, 1971. Someday we'll look back again. Another one off that album. Uh, this is what I was talking about. This one is, is I think, the closest to psychedelia that uh, that Merle has gone. This is such... I mean, this is from 71, but it reminds me 100% of Day Tripper. So here's what I want you to do, Peter. Play the beginning of, of Huntsville. That old white-haired judge in Dallas didn't pay story no mind. And now, Peter, I want you to play the beginning to Day Tripper by the Beatles. Can you hear it? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Right. So that's so that's that's what. As soon as I heard that, I was like, "This is." I can see either. I don't know if they. He. I guess that came out before. Uh, you know. Huntsville came out after Day Tripper, but 100%, I feel like it's Beatles influence, and that is the Bakersfield sound. This is also the second prison song of this collection, and as and an even stronger example of outlaw country. Now, where Mama Tried sounded regretful, now Haggard just doesn't give a fuck. He's guilty on his way to two life sentences <laughs> in prison in Huntsville, and is planning his breakout or to get killed trying. Have you ever been on the wrong side of the law? Uh, I've never been arrested, fortunately. I've been uh, pursued on foot, uh, but eluded them. What is that? How did? What do you mean you got pursued out, on foot? I outran the. What cops was the one situation? Time. Being stupid, coming out of a punk show in Arizona. I used to go see Social D and was kind of into the punk scene for a yeah. while back there, at like fifteen, sixteen, and got with these kids that were into like 
I mean, it's the stupidest shit. It's so lucky we didn't get shot because everyone in Arizona owned guns. Um, we would uh, we would jump a fence, go pool hopping, yeah, hop in someone's pool, swim real quick, come and hop and jump back out, and we were going down like an alley doing a bunch of it, yeah. And obviously somebody called the cops, and they came like two cop cars came, jumped out and started bolting, and uh, I went one way and the cops separated, and then I kept going another way and I was able to outrun them. Every time we went, we had a high school party. And the cops would show up when we were underage. Oh, we every this, time. We had this belief. It's just if if whatever way our friend Maury runs, go the other way. Because he's Ma- really fast. Maury, no, Maury was always going to get caught. Oh, really? He was always going to get caught. So if Ma- and everybody that went with Maury always got the ticket. They always got the citations. I so. got those citations. Yeah, for being a party's young. But I, le- I got one because I followed Maury the first time. And the first time I did it, my friend Johnny then came up to me and goes, dude. You followed Maury. Like, you can't follow him. Like, he, he's always gotten, he got <laughs> he busted. He just has that. So, he was, I love him to death, and I know Maury's probably He has that to tractor this. beam that just, just the, pulls cops, the cops Well, in. He's, he's slow-ish, I guess, but it was just, he always got fucked with. All right, that takes us into Everybody's Had the Blues. It's from 1973 from I Love Dixie Blues. It's a live album. Uh, the, the, this is a great song. It's a, like the first verse says it all. Everybody's had the blues sometimes. Everybody knows the tune and everybody knows the way I'm feeling because everybody's had the blues. He's basically just talking about like the first truth of the Buddhist four noble truths that suffering, pain and misery exist in life. I think this song is like R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. It just has this universal platitude. Uh, Life will put you will give you the blues and only consolation is that we all get it so there are so many examples of how we can all get through it and this was Merle and the Strangers 15th number one on the country charts which is funny because it's such a sad song the main lick that opens the song sounds like the old release me that was a big hit for Patti Page and Engelbert Humperdinck if you want to look that up Uh, but this is also like I said just it's a very sad song so let me ask you this. What are some things you believe about life and existence that won't ever change? What are your truths? Well, I believe in truth. I believe in light and darkness. I don't believe, you know, we get caught up a lot in the gray. Mm-hmm. I think you can, we can all recognize the difference. I think we can feel it. I think um, a universal truth is, you know, it, for some reason we don't want to believe it, but history can probably tell us everything we need to know. All we have to do is look back through it. You know, things don't really change. Um, they don't. Human nature doesn't change. It evolves in different ways, but it doesn't really change. So I don't know why we don't just look back and say, well, we tried this or that. It's failed miserably a hundred times or it yeah. succeeded a hundred times. Yeah. So why don't we do the thing that succeeded a hundred times? But for some reason, we want to sell people the things that's failed a hundred times and believe this time somehow it's different. I don't believe in the this time it's different. Uh, I don't believe that people innately change. I don't believe that life really changes. I think it evolves. So I believe in principles. I don't believe in ideas, if that makes sense. That does make sense, yeah. You know, everyone's always selling ideas. Um, I got a great idea. This is going to fix everything. Uh, It's a fucking idea, dude. It doesn't, human nature will tell you exactly how that'll play out. Might be good for some, will be terrible for others, terrible for, you know, lots, great for few, who knows? But I can probably tell you how that will play out by just looking backwards. 
yeah. at an example of how it's been tried before. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. So you can't say things, you know, I mean, I know when it says, oh, things move fast for the internet, change things. You know, I'm sure people felt that way when the telephone came out. God damn it, this, you know, used to come and knock on a door. Now this son of a bitch calls me, you know. They've been, before then, they used to send a letter, you know, before there were big neighborhoods. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like these things change us, right? So now it's easier we text. There's cause and effect from it. I think that, you know, the an unfortunate thing about too much communication, people don't make stick to plans anymore, you know, like. You, the people are too easy to get a hold of. You can say I'll meet you for dinner at eight, and say at seven fifty. Sorry, bro, because I know I can get you. Otherwise, I'd feel bad. You might be at the restaurant. I gotta go. Yeah. Now, fuck it. I can just text you, Good let you know that. that you don't. But I believe I would say in principles over ideas is a big one, and that history will tell you all you need to know. Just look there and fucking be honest with yourself. You want to know how it plays out? Take a look backwards. All right, if we're not back in love by Monday, it's from 1977's Ramblin' Fever. Uh, I love this title, and I love the chorus. Peter, play the chorus. If we're not back in love by Monday, we can't say we didn't try. But before we bury our love, let's make sure we've let it die. Sleep a few more nights together Say the things we used to say If we're not back in love by Monday We can go our separate way This song is written by Sonny Mock Thornton and Glenn Glenn Martin and was first recorded by Merle in 77 and it seems to be a total product of the mid 70s. So many couples were finding out that their marriages and personal happiness were not mutually exclusive and the old idea of staying together no matter what had been outdated. What is your philosophy on exiting a relationship and how much do you have to trust your inner voice 100 percent, probably or at least 90 basically all we've been talking it's like your about. fucking inner voice right yeah um you have to trust it my philosophy on exiting a relationship is do it um as soon as you know my results in exiting a relationship have been staying way too long yeah have for you, have yes because i think i felt either guilty or um, maybe I could change it or maybe I was more of the cause of it Yeah. when in reality like people with with the outside looking in are telling you clear as day it's always so much easier on the outside you know and I thought that you know I could fix it I mean that's kind of I think by job description what you do is to some degree as a producer you you solve problems you manage crisis you yeah. support people um, you know you work with um, often challenging personalities, big idea people. You know, it's it's Hollywood. You work with a lot of artists. Yeah, you work with a lot of different temperaments. I'm good at probably. Uh, it, I am good at navigating, helping, and dealing and supporting them. So I think when things get somewhat chaotic, I figure I can fix it. 
um, and so it's my nature. And so I've, I've stayed longer because when I look back, I knew, like if you said, gun to your head, what should you do? And I was going to be honest, I, should, I would say leave at that time, but then it would be six months later that I would. It's like, I always say that like breaking up with somebody is like buying a plane ticket. Like we always wait too long and the price goes up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's 100%. Like, you're just dude. like, you're always like, ah, you know, you, you know, you're going to take that trip. You're like, hey, this is not working out, but I'll just wait a little bit. And the next thing you know, you've got a middle seat and you're in zone D and you're like, what the fuck dude? Like, why am I paying this much money for such a shitty seat for a trip? I knew I was going to take. I think I'll just stay here and drink. It's now we're starting to get into eighties Merle. Uh, it's from back to the bar rooms. This is just a fun honky tonk, badonka tonk tonk. That's all I wrote. Uh, this was made in the eighties and it sounds like it. Peter, I want you to play a few things for me. I want you to play the sax parts because I think it's kind of funny and it sounds a little too overproduced for me. I do like it, but it kind of has a Huey Lewis in the news totally. feel to it. So play well, minute, it's 1980 now. <laughs> play minute three, uh, second 11. Uh, play the guitar solo into the drum thing, into the sax. To me, it sounds like the opening to like Night Court. It's just, it's got a very, it's just out of everything we've been listening to. Uh, He's probably trying to get in touch with the kids a little bit more. Get that nice 80s sound. For sure. Uh, do you have any thoughts on it? Did you write well, anything? No, but I mean, it's it, we started with The Bottle Let Me Down. Yeah. Right, as the first song, and now we're almost at the end. We're in the 80s, and it's, I think I'll just stay here and drink. Another. I think this is yeah. where he gets... I mean, in his evolution now, which we've kind of dropped off, this is his reflective, I think, time. You know, we we sort of talked about the angry time. We talked about yeah. probably a lot of these songs is beginning to get in touch with this stuff. Now, he was also married, I think, five times. So he struggled with, I don't want to say struggled, that's his journey. But he had a lot of relationships. Yes. Right. And so I think love and what that meant to him was an evolving journey for him. And so as he's into understanding that we all get the blues, um, I think now he's into I'm kind of getting older and not grumpy, but probably a little more set in my ways. And oh, and, yeah. And I'm feeling like this. Hey, what, I think I'll just sit, I ain't going to deal with all this shit. I think I'll just sit here. and The drink. next two songs are, are this, you know, because we're going to be talking about uh, are the good times really over? This is this is him reflecting. He's 100%. accepted who he is now. He's a little bit more pissed off. But this is another drinking song about and it's another broken love song. Uh, I often wonder if the woman in these songs were ever just pissed at the narrator's constant drinking at the bar. And that's why they fought about it. So let's talk about. Are the good times really over? Because that's kind of where we're at from what we're talking about. It's a beautiful song, and Merle hates change. And this is Merle looking. Also, this is Merle looking like his Neil Diamond phase. Totally. If you wanna, if you guys go to like a picture of the album, I don't know where if I put it down. It's from uh, 1981's Big City. Find the album cover because Merle looks exactly like Neil Diamond. 
All right, this is Oki from Muskoki growing old. Here's the angry American is just wistful and sad and wallowing in his Hallison memories. He's still square about getting high, and he's still patriotic, but in a lot of ways, America has let him down. And you can hear it throughout a lot of the lyrics. He's like, are we rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell with no kind of chance for the flag or the liberty belt? Uh, I don't know how to feel uh, about this type of lament, because just like the idea of of, uh, Make America Great Again, it seems like there are people who don't see how shitty America was for so many people. And how even though it's nowhere near perfect, that there is still so many, like you said, so many huge advances that we have. And even when it's false, America in many ways uh, has never not been great. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But this is more grandpa on the porch remembering the sure. good old days. Sure. Right, like whatever those were. When coffee was a nickel. Yeah. No, you know, you're, and you're all right. those things that are a simpler time because, and I do believe this, like I said, that it, it's the specifics that change, right? So I'm also, every guy is going to get that way and remember when I was a kid, this is how it was. And they sold the paper at the corner store and there was, you know, and. All these things that are the fondness of how they grew up. Now, he grew up with Liberty Bells and these things being important, so that's his fondness of it. But I think it's a reflective song of whatever your experience was as you get older of the simpler times before. Well, what do you miss? What is your old man misses? Because we're getting there, dude. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. No, we're fucking getting up there, bro. Um, I miss a time when you could go out before cell phone cameras. You know, not that I would want to go out a ton in that way anymore, but I was on the tail end of being able to go out and have fun, and people really had fun. Um, Genuinely kind of connected and didn't worry, and I think people in our business and people that were a little bit known, you know, the bars didn't report it, because there was nearly no one to report to that you were there. Yeah. Now they can just blog about it or put it out, which sucks, because they're kind of ratting you out, and you couldn't get a picture taken, and so it was hearsay. Of what happened, and no one really paid attention to it. And I think people had a lot more fun, and their guard was down. But I don't blame people who now say that they just kind of stay home a lot more because you don't want to be. Yeah. I think the paparazzi, I mean, kind of have ruined a lot of the fun for a lot of for a, a lot of people, or forced you into different ways. Maybe house parties or other things where you feel like you can control it more. Yeah. As opposed to kind of going out to to fun venues and just being able to be free. Like a lot of people feel like they can't even dance because if they start dancing, they're going to get a video and then that's going to go viral. Not even that they posted it. And then someone's going to say, what a fucking loser for d-. it just sucks. Yes. It's like, you know why, you know, people don't even want to put themselves in a situation where that can happen. I guess like there was in a way, um, there was sort of a coolness to Hollywood yeah. in some ways, but now it's like, you know, it's great. I don't complain. Barriers to entry down. You can shoot yourself on a cell phone and become famous, and that's cool because it was hard for people to get in the club. Yeah. Um, but there was also something fun about kind of hanging within those circles and not worrying about always being photographed or reported or talked about in a way where you could just kind of let your hair down and have some fun. And I think those days are long gone for long everybody. Gone. You better expect that whatever you do is gonna is going to be out there. And there's a generation, by the way, that knows that and is fine with it. They also don't think content has a value and they should all share it for free. Yeah. You know, it's just how they've come up. So they'll lament the days of YouTube 
when something's replaced that and Twitter, and they'll say it was a much simpler time when we just had YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. You know, and they'll they will lament that. We still got one more song, and then we got to do a couple facts. Poncho and Lefty. Uh, we were talking about Willie Nelson. We brought him up a bunch. This is his 1983 duet with Willie. Uh, and this was written and recorded in, in what well, the song had been written and recorded in 1972 by the incredible Towns Van Zandt. Now, funny thing, when I heard this song, I immediately said, oh, my God, they ripped off the song Candle in the Wind. It's got a very Candle in the Wind Elton John feel. All the Candle in the Wind came out later. Elton John ripped him off. Yeah, he ripped off Towns. (laughs) Now, uh, this was a huge song for Merle and Willie. It became a number one country Monster, monster, monster song. Monster head. You got two of the greats working together. Now, in 1983, a little movie came out that was endeared itself to people all the way up to this very day, 38 years later. And I have to imagine... That your perpetual holiday marathon turn as Ralphie in A Christmas Story was a dual-edged sword. Uh, of course, it locked you into the public's mind and memories of an 11-year-old, but it also saved saved you from forever being known as Messy Marvin from the popular Hershey's Syrup commercials. True. Which is fucking nuts. <laughs> How has the celebrity of your youth followed you today? Tell us some stories. Um... Yeah, it's it's um, it's followed it in a good way. Yeah, yeah. It um, you know I I've met a lot of people who are in like this is a very iconic thing for me. Obviously, you know it's the most well known thing. Is I've like, done. This is like an dude, iconic dude. It's movie it's, period. It's one right. of it's 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 my Christmas movie. I'm Jewish and I love this fucking movie. Right. So much, so many people do it. So many people, they play it all day long on TNT, and I probably watch it two or three times every Christmas. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it winds up on in our house, and it has for a long time. It's <laughs> fun. It's just, it doesn't feel like Christmas without it. Yeah. And not that I'm, you know, sitting in front of the television glued to it. Yeah. But as background, it feels familiar. It's nice to have. Um, You know, I didn't go through a period where I said in my acting career, like, I kind of stopped it. I didn't have to kill Ralphie, so to speak. But I, a lot of people I saw killed their iconic things in sure. life that I've met. And I think that's kind of sad, especially when it's great and people love it. You know, you can't, just as you got excited right now, this is so many people it's so around great. Christmas that come up to me constantly because I guess I look similar enough. Yeah, they you recognize still, you still me like... right, all the time. And their genuine smiles, like you're smiling right now. Your eyes are big, like literally you are talking about it. <laughs> I've asked I know, but I'm me saying. Me my writers, like we were like, when should we ask him about it? And I was like, we should fucking come out strong. And then and Morty, my buddy's like, nah, we, I'll save it to the end. It'll be great. And there's so much I want to know about it. but and you're, and you're welcome to, and I don't have a problem talking about it. Yeah. Because it elicits that reaction, you'd be a real asshole if you were to try to trample on that for people. As I've evolved with it, I realize the traditions it has in people's homes, how much meaning it has to them, um, it how far back it goes for them to have come up with it. Yeah. 
And, you know, I see people kind of get starstruck with me, even sometimes famous people, um, because it's such an iconic part of their lives. So I've shook hands with it. You know, fortunately, I've been able to do other things. So it's not the only it's not my one and done. That would have probably been oh, hard. Yeah. I think, well, you've had you know, such an incredible career. Right. That would have been camera. tough. I think if like nothing else had ever been done or then you become the autograph circuit guy. Yeah. You know, like you can't let it go. So I produced a musical based on Christmas Story that went to Broadway. We were nominated for three Tonys for it. You know, I found other ways to kind of continue it in my life in a good way. Yeah. Um, but it was nobody expected anything from that movie. I talk about all the hype of Honky Tonk Freeway and Paternity and all this. You're going to be a star kid. This was the opposite. This was, the, I, <laughs> I call it the take your lunch pail to work movie. So it took them like 10 years to get the movie made. It was low budget. There were no expectations. It was a quirky kind of script about a period movie, a kid who wants a BB gun. Like, who's going to go to this thing? Yeah. You know, it wasn't leaping off the page as a concept, but they had worked so hard, Gene Shepard and Bob Clark, the writer and director, at preparing and, and, and what they had built was so special, obviously, and they knew what they were doing with it. No expectations. And to think of all the movies I've done, that this is the one that has merchandise? Like, it's crazy. There's what what merchandise? Oh, there's, oh that, the leg. The leg, yeah. The leg the lamp. Leg is... No, it's Christmas ornaments and T-shirts and keychains and everything. Yeah. That's kind of, that's come from this movie. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good lesson, I guess, of our theme of authenticity that we've sort of talked about through all of this, right? I think it yeah. almost seems to be our running theme, right? Well, this is a kind very authentic be, album. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, right. he's, he's an authentic but person. But even, as we talked about relationships, right? Stay true to who you are. Have faith. Things will come. Yeah. Like, like other music genres we've talked about. Principles over ideas. Swingers. Them knowing that this little microcosm. Look at this quirky little thing. In the 40s. I mean, this is a very specific kind of world. But it also winds up being crazy universal. Because it's about this specific working class family. Yeah. In a tight time. There's a and lot to not, relate to. And they're not shooting the four quadrants. And it's a bizarre VO tone that's only really ever been done in the Wonder Years. It's that first person looking back. You're older, but you're in the scene with the character. It's not only reflective. Like, it's, a, it's, it's literally only been done a couple times. So he created that, which was new form of it. Um, but they really had a vision for this movie. And I fit into that. And, you know, Bob was so well prepared. And he had his note cards and... The level of preparation that I saw that he had done for this movie blew blew me away compared to the other filmmakers that I had worked with that had done big films. Yeah, dude, it's it's just one of those movies that it's like you like it's I, I'll put it up there like it's I wouldn't put it in my list of one of my favorite movies, but it is one of my favorite movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I just I love it so much. It's just so iconic. And it's like I could see why you you would have no idea that it was going to be as big no, as it was. Not, no way. So it's 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 kind of cool in that way yeah. for me that with sort of all the hype machines, the one that sort of didn't have it is the one that became the most iconic. You want to do a couple facts and we'll get you out of here? You got a yeah. few minutes? These are some facts and there's some facts. Ba-doom, 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 ba-doom. These are the facts and the facts and the facts and facts. All right. When Johnny Cash visited the White House in 1970, Richard Nixon or one of his staff members requested that he play this song 
Oki from Muskogee, as well as A Boy Named Sue, and a song by Guy Drake called Welfare Cadillac. Cash said he couldn't play Oki and Cadillac, but did play Sue, as well as a few others. The incident was played out in the press as a confrontational situation, but it was all very cordial as the request for the songs had been made before Cash showed up and his performance was well-received. Cash later wrote that the songs he didn't play had become a lightning rod for the anti-hippie. Has there ever been work of yours that was interpreted differently than intended? Yeah, well, I think, you know, comedy gets a it can really get shit on. Yeah. You know, I don't know why, because it's somehow not high art, I guess, according to people. But what's the hardest thing to do? If you're interacting with someone, make them laugh. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot harder than to tell them some fucking sob story about how you lost your mom and get them crying or to get them bored is pretty easy to do. You know, like a lot of these other films that kind of get all the sort of critical awards and things. Yeah. I, I feel to some degree like a lot of that stuff is. So I think a lot of our stuff, I don't want to say it's misinterpreted, but I think it's interpreted very differently than the public interprets it. Have you gotten any pushback from like the F is for family or, or anything? Has there been like has Netflix or been like, well, there's some people. But I mean, obviously they're behind it. It's going on its fourth season. To Netflix credit, they're, they're always like more, 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 more. But there's absolutely haters go out there and, you know, read about the show. I mean, there was a blog just this year that the show is anti-Semitic. It's like, okay, the show promotes devil worship. If somebody says it's anti-Semitic, uh, you go, DJ Howlin' Hank is a Jew. Yeah. He's well, a Jew face. <laughs> and make sure you say Jew face. Uh, it's pro-devil um, worship. And someone's broken down on YouTube all the symbols that we subversively place in there. Um, to make sure that who we really are is and our message is getting out to the world. So, yeah, I think people read into things what they want to read into. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's isn't that kind of in social media. Somebody says yeah. something and then they says, oh, this is evocative of these tropes of this and that. And the guy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not what I was saying. I was saying I like the song. Yeah. You know, or like saying I like America means, oh, then you must like bigotry. It's like, no, I didn't really say that. I said I like America. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shitty components that go into anything. So it doesn't mean that we can't point out a like or something that we enjoy. And so it's like, no, we're just kind of trying to make people laugh and try to poke some fun at ourselves. Um, oh, well, you're not this, this and this or you're very stupid. You know, the critics have a lot of a lot, a lot, a lot of power now in our business. Um, you know, the kind of Rotten Tomato score and the aggregate is, you know, can be a challenging thing to overcome. Um, but if you look at then the exit poll scores of things, you know, and it's it's sort of a good thing that social media has done, which is like, hey, don't listen. This thing is really funny. Oh, yeah. You get to the you actual know, fans of it right, instead exactly. of listening they to say, Roger Ebert. Go, this thing's funny. And I think that that's helped a lot. So that's helped stem a lot of the tide. Yeah. But I think, you know, sometimes you're just pushing up against what perceptions are of sort of what you do. Yeah. And it's never going to be really fully embraced or recognized as a certain art form. I took completely. All right, here we go. Merle Haggard made the Guinness Book of World Records for buying the largest round of drinks when he bought 5,095 drinks of Canadian Club for the entire club he was performing. The bill totaled, oh, Jesus Christ, $12,737.50 and equaled 40 gallons of whiskey. What's the dumbest financial decision you've ever made? <laughs> Buying a boat. <laughs> really? Yes. Why? You know, but that's great, though. It's, it's a boat. Uh, yeah, bullshit. You never <laughs> use it. 
You should rent it. You never use it. It's a fucking money pit. Yeah. I bought it with a buddy of mine because we want to do some fishing here in California, and thank God it's out of my life. What happened? You got rid of it finally? Totally, dude. Yeah, because you never use it. It's crazy expensive. He just uses it now, and he just took over the payments. It's the dumbest fucking thing you can ever do. Can I ask how much it was? Too much. Okay. Is, that, geez, is, that, is, that, is it a <laughs> No, big... no, 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 no. It wasn't some fucking yacht. Okay. No, I don't. I mean, come on. No. You, get, you got yacht It was a money. fishing boat. It was a fishing boat. Okay. Um, but it was still, <laughs> it was the dumbest thing. But, but how good did you feel the day that you first got on it that I, first time? Yeah, it's the two greatest days of your life, right? The first day <laughs> you get on, on it and the day you finally sell it. The true <laughs> best days in boat ownership. That's the bottom line. And it's like the great day you get on it, then this pit in your stomach forms. Yeah. And the pit sits there, and you deny to all your friends that the pit's there. You're like, no, no, no. It was a really smart thing to do. Yeah. We'll, we'll go out of it all the time, dude. I'm going to catch this Nothing. dude. And then the pit finally up. leaves the day you sell it. Good for you. All right. Last one, and we'll get you out of here. Thank you for coming. This of has course. been so much fun. Of course. In 1972, then California Governor Ronald Reagan granted Merle Haggard a full pardon for his past crimes. More than 30 years later, Haggard received a less publicized pardon by Arnold Schwarzenegger, another actor turned California governor. What's a reward you've received throughout your career where you were like, I don't give a shit about this? Um, Probably those, uh, the Young Artist Awards <laughs> that they give out. Like, I believe I got... Best performance by an actor for a film called The Dirt Bike Kid. I was like, I remember on. The Dirt Bike Kid. I know, but even I knew that performance wasn't fantastic. It was fine. Yeah. But that wasn't the best child performance of the year. And I didn't even get one for Christmas Story. So I was like, You Fuck didn't you. get one for Christmas no. Story? No, I don't even think I got nominated. So you win for this shit. It's all who will show up. My awareness of award shows yeah. was very young. Well, what's, you know. what's one that you've gotten that you that you hold dear to you? Um, we got, we didn't win, but we got nominated for an Emmy for a show that I did with Favreau called Dinner for Five. And I was really, really proud of that show. Yeah. And that was, yeah, it was five people around dinner drinking. Have you ever seen it? I haven't, no, but. It... Watch one. They're all up on YouTube now, which is fine. They're there. People are watching them. Um, it's five actors, directors, producers have dinner genuinely in a restaurant that we've shut down. And we have cameras back, and we just observed, and we filmed, and we cut it into about a half an hour. They're, sm- they're smoking, they're drinking, they're having fun. It was almost like an early podcast oh, wow. in a way because like, even though we shot it, it was genuine conversation. People would ask each other questions, and you learned a lot. And I liked that show very much. And that was back when it was like best nonfiction show before they had really defined it. So it was like 400 eligible, eligible shows, and we got nominated for an Emmy for it, and I liked that. So that it, when they say, what is it, like the nominate, it's – it's a victory even when you're nominated, yeah. which I know is bullshit for most of the people. I kind of felt that way. Not that we didn't want to win, and we went and we were disappointed. We laughed as soon as they announced it wasn't. We bounced. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went to the Dresden. <laughs> totally, dude. I love you, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, this was great, dude. Peter Billingsley, ladies and gentlemen. So happy that I got to sit down with him and talk about his his boy Merle. And now all of our boys Merle. Cool thing about Peter, he has no social media. 
So you have no way of reaching out to him, and he loves that probably. He's probably his life is probably perfect. Uh, but what you can do is watch F is for Family on Netflix. I'm on the show. Bill Burr's on the show. Vince Vaughn's on the show. It's incredible, guys. Watch F is for Family on Netflix. Also, check out the opening act, which he produced with Vince Vaughn, directed by our good friend Steve Byrne, starring a bunch of comedians like Bill Burr, Tom Segura, Jimmy O. Yang, and more. It comes out later this year, so be on the lookout. I'll also be posting his mixtape track listing link. And if you haven't been following us, what we're doing, guys, every guest is making you a mixtape so you can get into the musical mind of all of our guests. So do it. Listen to these playlists that they're making for you guys. It's like a mixtape for a friend. And your friend happens to be Peter Billingsley, Bill Burr, fucking Wanda Sykes. They do this. They take time out of their lives because I asked them to do it. So I want you guys to fuck with it. And if you want to find that, and for all things 500, go to the 500podcast.com. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And most importantly, follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. And like I say every week, guys, rate, review on your platform of choosing. But please, subscribe to the 500 to get that word out, man. We want to get the numbers up. We're doing pretty good. We can do better. Follow DJ Morty Coyle at DJ Morty Coyle on Twitter and check out him and his daughter singing a lot of songs uh, on their Instagram page at B and Daddy Cartoons and listen to his podcast, Yid Nation. Also, guys, join the 500 Club. It's our Patreon. We give away merch. We're giving away a bunch of stuff. Live chats with me and a guest we got coming up. Sign up for the club and you get full uncut episodes Interview extras all a day early on Record Store Tuesday. So, join the movement, The 500 Club. Do it, and you can find it at the500podcast.com backslash club for all details on Patreon membership and options to support The 500. Now, we just listened to Merle Haggard. Now, here is an artist that is directly influenced by the album. From Nashville, Tennessee, here's singer-songwriter Mick Fury with the song Front Porch of America, which also happens to be the name of a web series Mick is producing, which follows him as he tours across the country, interviewing people from the left, from the right, and the center to talk about why our nation is so divided and hopefully bring people together with the help of this big-hearted American ballads. And you can find the series and more of his music at his website, mickfury.com good luck mick uh because i don't think any big-hearted americana ballads are gonna be like what brings pro-life and uh pro-choice people together bro it's just not gonna happen but the song's dope if you guys are in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists you want your music featured on the 500 send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. I want to play your music. Send me your music. We'll play it at the end of the episode. Next week is Notorious B.I.G. Week with his 1997 classic, Life After Death. So y'all got some homework to do. Thanks for tuning in, Fleece Army. Stay fleecy. We've been not shining light. Most times we get it right. 
have sailed to these shores with just the clothes on our backs and the dream of something more on the front porch of America on the front porch of America with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Next Chapter Podcasts.